Hello and welcome to Do Not Steal, a podcast about tabletop criticism and our OCs. Uh... Man, every time I think I have a thing and then it just vanishes out of my brain. I'm Olivia Joseph. Hi, Olivia Joseph. Um, I can try doing those and, and hope that I have something. I have no guarantee that I'm gonna be any better at it. I was I was gonna make I was gonna make some shitty joke uh, about uh, supporting authoritarianism, but then like I didn't have it when it came time to say the thing. We're also just not gonna have the context for for that joke until we've talked about the game, actually. Um, yeah, but that's why it's kind of funny, you know. For sure, so, for sure. I I. I want to say, by the way, I take it back. You shouldn't hand over those, like, introducing a podcast duties over to me, because I will say things like, and this podcast will kill you, Um, (laughs) which I don't think is a message you want to send to our fans. No, no, no. Uh, This is a podcast that will bring you back to life if you have died, actually. (laughs) No, no, you can't make spurious medical claims about our podcast. Yes, I can. Who's going to stop me? I don't know, the FDA? But, come on, come fight me! Okay, well, I I just don't want to go to prison for this. <laughs> if only I lived in, like, an anarchist mutual aid society where there was no prison, just a lot of mutual aid. Yeah, if only, if only we all lived in an anarchist mutual aid society where society was founded on mutual aid and not uh, hyper-capitalism. Yeah, I'm going to say mutual aid. Uh, I'm predicting at least 10 more times throughout this episode, so keep me honest on that. <laughs> um, uh, now, why are we saying mutual aid so often? Uh, does it relate maybe to the game that we have today? Uh, it does. Uh, I I don't know if they actually say mutual aid that much or if we're just kind of making fun of it. Uh, but I don't think they over say it. I think it's just a word that or a phrase that has like a lot of baggage tied up with it not as like an actual concept as a concept of like you know just leftists helping people in a community cool love it but um it definitely has a lot of you know built up stuff uh of what people actually mean when they say it and i i think this game for as much as i uh adore a lot about it definitely falls into that Mm -hmm. i i did a control f it only shows up 10 times uh, that's exactly this. as many as I promised to say, so mutual oh, aid. Wow. wow. Mutual aid. Check it out. Anyway, mutual we're aid. talking about Eclipse Phase. We're talking about Eclipse Phase, second edition specifically. Second um, edition, baby. Because this is one of those games where there was a, a core rulebook that came out in 2009, and then a second edition rulebook that came out in 2019. So, pretty big gulf between those. Mm-hmm. Um but I think that the most interesting thing isn't necessarily that like it's it's a 10 year gap, but that neither of those years are into 1990s because good Lord, do we have a 90s game in our hands today? Uh, I'm, that's true. I'm going to be counting on you to, to talk about that in more detail, though. Um, I don't know if a thing I don't know if we've explicitly said on the podcast before, but you're definitely more of like a tabletop head than me, whereas I am like I'm like a tabletop casual. I I I'm not that much of a tabletop head. Um what I have are two lovely friends named Ben and James who uh their their love language, so to speak, is sitting you down and telling you about tabletop RPGs they're interested in for half an hour. Mm. Um, and Shout so, 
Yeah, no, they're, they're awesome. I love them. Um, that sounds like I'm making fun of them, but I promise I'm not. You'll know when I'm making fun of those two. Um, but yeah, they're, they're both very well versed in the history of this stuff. Um, and so when I'm saying things that sound vaguely smart about like the history of RPGs and what a 90s RPG is versus a 2010s RPG, I'm largely just cribbing from them. Mm-hmm. But I do feel confident enough to say at least some things about that in this episode. Mm-hmm. All right. Um. So let me. This is a four hundred thirty page book. Okay. Let mm-hmm. me give you the basics. Yeah. Eclipse phase. Oh, let's let's credit it first. Um. I was gonna do that. Oh I, my god! I'm so sorry. <laughs> I was about. To, I was literally going to say eclipse phase created by Rob Boyle and Brian Cross. Shout out to Rob Boyle and Brian Cross. Uh, I yeah, I I'd say shout outs. I'd, yeah, I'd say shout outs. Look, we we got some we got some beef. I'm gonna make fun of them a bit. I'm gonna make fun of their book a bit. Yeah. Uh, I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna seriously criticize the book. Um, yeah. you know. Um, but yeah, yeah. Shouts out. Anyway, they have created a game called Eclipse Phase. Yeah, which is a Space-faring science fiction setting with influences from horror, cyberpunk, and transhumanism. Mm-hmm. In the far future, in our solar system, it is only a few years after humanity has lost a devastating war against a group of super-intelligent AIs, which have subsequently disappeared, leaving kind of the scattered remains of what is now called transhumanity due to several technological advances. Uh, They are scattered across the solar system and dealing with kind of the remnants of that war, crime, politics, a bunch of other existential risks. Um, It's a very, like, kind of grab bag setting. There's a kind of a ton of stuff going on. You have, like, psychics. You have some aliens. You've got you know, exploring dead planets, you've got crime stuff, you've got uh, capitalists, you've got You've anarchists. got conspiracies and, like, yeah. neo-noir mysteries and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but basically, but, like, what they... So there's a lot of stuff you can do in the game, but the three yeah. kind of, like, general campaigns they suggest um, is that you play at... Number one, you play as Agents of Firewall, which is a clandestine kind of like spy organization that deals with existential risks wherever they pop up. Uh, mm-hmm. You can you can play as a group of gate crashers, which are people who go through these sort of mysterious alien gates to other worlds and explore them. Or you can play as a group of criminals who do criminal things in the future. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that those like that, set of three combined with like there's this whole little laundry list of like alternative campaigns salvage and rescue ops mercenary ops researching ops and so forth mm-hmm. that kind of gives you a sense of like how grab bag this is um because like if you're looking at a game like um blades in the dark from our first episode mm-hmm. uh that is very clear about what kind of like characters you're playing and what the goals and what the structure of a game are (laughs) whereas this it's really about like we have a loose mechanical framework that allows for a lot of different types of characters Mm -hmm. and we have this super expansive setting where you can just be 
you know, whichever archetype of cool cyberpunk-ish guy you want to be. I think also kind of core to the kinds of guys that you are in this game is that this is a setting where the vast majority of people have their minds have been digitized and separated from the physical bodies that they were born in. Um, Functionally, a lot of people in this setting have transcended death because they have backed up their minds. And even if they die, they will simply be restored to a new body. Um, yeah. so a mechan- an actual mechanical part of this game is like, you can own multiple bodies. Like, what kind of body are you, are you in right now? Um, you can like be in the body of like a genetically augmented gorilla and not be a genetically augmented gorilla yourself. You just like bought mm-hmm. one of them and are yeah. using or, that body. Or, or you can be a genetically augmented gorilla and exist mostly as like, you know, um, a cloud of sentient thought that's just patrolling the the internet, the future internet. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, like a lot of stuff just like going on setting wise. Um, in terms of mechanics, the basic role is uh, two ten sided dice for mm-hmm. most roles, um, and it works on kind of like a percentile system. You know, zero yeah. to a hundred, where. The first die that you roll is the tens, and the second is the ones. Um, and the basics of making a test in this system is that you roll the two die, get a number between 100, uh, 0 and 100, and then compare it to a, a target number, which is usually your skill level in, in whatever you're trying to do. Um, yeah. So, like, for example, I want to hit... I want to hit something with a wrench. Who doesn't? I have skill level 50 in melee. I roll the die. 10 is a... Oh, uh, 10 is a... 10 is a 4. 1 is a 6. I got 46. That's under my skill level of 50. Hooray, I pass and I've I've hit the wrench, you know? Um, if it's over my skill level, I didn't do it. So you want higher skill levels. Um, yeah. They are... And- they're essentially like a percentage chance for you to do anything related to that skill. Yeah. And when I say that this is a nineties game, that's a lot of what's going on here. Um, which is that like, if we think about the archetypal, like 2010s game, um, it is something that is in like the PBTA or FITD type of space where, um, there's a lot of like narrative control elements, a lot of very simple stats, um, less emphasis on crunch and mechanics and more on just the idea of, you know, these are basic frameworks that let you mechanize um, having a cool narrative. 90s games, um, which doesn't mean obviously every game that was made in that uh, decade, but it, it's it's the stereotype for sure, mm-hmm. are games where you have percentile dice and you have character creation that's like very free form and consists of like distribute 200 points across the following, you know, options and cost tables and, you know, stacking and synergies and all of that stuff. Um, I sure distributed uh, 650 points total across the skills, across like 17 skills for my character. You distribute so much in this game. But here's what's fascinating about it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And this is something that like I... I don't know. This this is one of the places I think where like uh the fact that we 
in this podcast make characters and talk about the game from a character creation perspective, but we don't actually play it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that th- this is somewhere where I feel less confident in making a uh, definitive statement. But what I can say is that for all the complexity that is involved in character creation, you end up with something that is like remarkably simple. Um, and it's not something like Lancer, or it's not something like Dungeons and Dragons 4th Edition, where you end up with like a suite of tactical combat options um, that are like on a grid and involve like combining a lot of skills and powers that you did to to not just like add numbers up, but to to kind of build strategic playbooks. This is a game where like most of what you're doing is just rolling a D100, checking your bonus, checking like situational modifiers and any succeed or you fail or you know, sometimes you get um, corner cases where, like, you can do dice manipulation stuff or spend willpower type resources. Mm-hmm. It is a game that I imagine plays a little more like these um, 2010s games that are just about, like, you know, okay, well, if you want to do something, then tell me the verb that you're using for it, and then we just do a simple roll. But it has a lot of these, like, trappings of that 90s complexity that don't actually ladder up into much complexity for the ultimate character. The ultimate character is just, like, a set of numbers, basically. And there's even, like, a, a, a huge list of, like, you know, positive and negative traits. And you can buy negative traits to get more character creation points. And that's one of the most 90s things ever in, you know, gaming. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the, the idea of, like... like... Do you want to buy an addiction for your character to get some points? Yeah. To spend? Yeah, 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 yeah. I was like, Just, this, this, this is the '90s, baby. We're back. Absolutely. So it's that stuff, but like 90% of them are just like you get a plus 10 bonus on this specific type of check, mm-hmm. you know. So it all just ladders down to something very simple, which like feels disappointing to me um, because we kind of went into this game thinking like, oh, well, we've done two PBTAs in a row. Let's break that up with a nice crunchy game. And this game makes you think it's crunchy because you look at the character sheet and you're like, oh, that's a lot of fields. Whoa. But then fundamentally, it's very simple. I don't know if that would actually be bad to play, though. Um, Mm. I don't know if it would just kind of be like one of those systems that mostly gets out of your way. Um, But yeah, there's, there's this very weird and fascinating gulf between like, the the extreme fiddliness of character creation and the fact that like what you're ending up with are just like a set of numbers that you add to a percentile die sometimes Mm -hmm. i yeah kind of like you said i feel like i have less you know i don't have much to say confidently about the experience of play but i know for the experience of character creation i definitely did it twice just to like make sure that i had everything and then was kind of like well have some skills got a gun ooh i yeah. got claws that's fun got some claws on my guy um but Pretty yeah cool. at the end of the day it, it was like it felt like a lot of work to get to a place that I've been in other games with less work. Um, yeah, it, it it feels like you're making like a PBTA character minus like the moves that constitute a really good PBTA playbook. Yeah. Um. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, I, I I think that this is somewhere where um. Like I said, I I think that the rules will probably just kind of get out of your way a lot of the time. 
And I know that like part of the um, idea of what you're doing with uh, these these rules is that like you're encouraged to sleeve into different bodies and thus have different stats and whatnot. Um, but at character creation, where, you know, unless you kind of dedicate a lot of your freeform points to this and thus lack in other areas, you just have the one morph right now, um, the one body. Um, and that means that, like, if there is a lot of complexity to this game um, and, and like, interesting mechanical choices to make, then it kind of comes after that. And it, it probably is the same type of thing that, like, we criticize with Lancer, where it's like, well, I'm... I like the thing that I built the first time and all my kind of like pilot stats are here. They're called ego stats. You know, these are things that relate to you as a consciousness, not you as the body that you're currently operating. Mm -hmm. Those are all still going to be the same. So I'm not, you know, going to all of a sudden, you know, have uh, optimization for a, a completely different type of character. I already optimized to be the type of character that I am. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure how excited I am about that subsystem. Mm. I like a lot less changes when you go into a different body than you would think to yeah. a kind of like shocking degree. To me. <laughs> yeah. Like there are some things. Okay. Like my character has an innate like somatic aptitude, which is like ability to move a body. Which to yeah. me is like, that's a thing that rests with the body because some bodies are easier or harder to move. Yeah, um, it's like if you if you get sleeved into like a, a robot crab body, then it's like, well, because I can play basketball, does that mean that I know how to look emote as a robot crab? Mm -hmm. I guess it does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like. Yeah, like that. I think there is a, there's kind of like a continuity of self in this game, like mechanically, um, which I, I think feels a little disappointing. Um, yeah. Uh, and I think we can, I think we'll probably talk about that more fictionally. Like, yeah. Like at the fictional side of the game. Um, but I do, I like what you said earlier about, like, it is, in a way, it's very much like a fusion of a kind of 90s and 2010s aesthetic um, to a tabletop game. Because, like, once you've said that, I can really go through all the different parts and be like, yeah, you, you make him, you get character improvements in this game by, ba by basically just, like, getting points for fulfilling like your motivations or character objectives and then you spend mm -hmm. those points and so you know this kind of like more role-playing focused more kind of like continuous you know you can level up without fighting things to try to avoid the classic D&D &D thing where all the party member tries to kill every everything they come across um, that feels like a very 2010s kind of deal um, and then the part where you're like, okay, I have five res points. What can I get with my res points? And then I have to look yeah. at a table, which is like, hold on, let me get the table. Um, did I mention this book is 434 pages? It's a lot of, a lot of book. It's really long. Yeah. Um, um and I just want to, I just want to say real quick, it's long and it 
feels unnecessarily so. I, I feel like there's a lot of setting stuff that we go over multiple multiple times, times yeah um yeah but then you know so you get your res points for role playing um and that's very 2010s and then you look at a table and you're like okay so i can get five skill points i can get some aptitude points i can get reputation i can uh trade them for morph points or ego points and like then spend those yeah. on traits and that that part feels very like all the little categories and like number fiddliness of of 90s games i think another good example of this is that there are um these things called pools and some of them are tied to just like your character some of them are tied to you know whatever morph you're in right now um and these kind of like act as willpower points in the broadest sense in that they're like things that you can spend to get a bonus um or to to do a cool thing and there is a very 2010s manifestation of it in that they will say things like, you know, you can use these to define the environment, introduce an item, introduce an NPC, define a relationship. And it's like, oh, that's a type of, you know, narrativist, um, you know, to the extent that that word means anything, like idea of taking the reins a little bit from the game master and saying, well, you know, I want to have like a, a, a sort of control on the shape of this story. Uh, but what makes it also really 90s is that there are four different types of these pools um, called Insight, Moxie, Vigor, and Flex. And what you can do with them includes uh, ignore all modifiers to a test, add plus 20 to the test target number, flip-flop a D100 roll, upgrade a success, downgrade a critical failure, receive 5 plus 1 or 10 plus 2 points to all skill tests linked to one aptitude for 24 hours. So it's the same... And I, I want to be clear... The joke is that, like, I read all of them out and it went on too long, right? Um, I read out about a third of them. Um, <laughs> so there are all these different things you can do to, like, either mess with dice or mess with stats or get a bit of, like, narrative premacy in there. And that mm -hmm. feels like it's one of the starkest examples of, like, a combination of the 90s mindset where it's like, we are going to use the hell out of these D100 rolls. And the 2010s mindset that's, like, Look, the dice here are almost a little bit vestigial. Um, we just maybe roll 2d6 for something, and then we um, do a lot of, like, you know, narrative moves and role-playing. Um, and it's such a weird hybrid beast that I don't know what to do with, but I definitely respect it. Um, I think that it's, like, a very interesting effort to take, like, these 90s mechanical frameworks and sort of drag them kicking and screaming into a a modern um, environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's like, it's very, it's very different, I think, from a lot of games that I've been looking at recently for this podcast. Um, yeah. I think it's certainly interesting. Um, uh, again, like, you know, because we're not playing it, it is, you know, I feel like for this one, I'm specifically interested in like, well, how does this play out? when you when you play a game um but I'm, I'm interested in that i guess which is which is a good mm -hmm. yeah um do you want to talk about the fiction a little more <laughs> yeah or maybe around what 400 pages minute per page yeah we could do like a seven hour podcast right yeah 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 okay 
Here's, Let's do this. I want to. I want to elaborate. Right. So, like, when I said <laughs> we go over things, I feel like the way that this book is structured kind of weird in that you get like a summary of things. Um, when you when you like in character creation where they'll be like okay now you have to pick a faction here's the summary of the factions and then they tell you it again later on in like the lore section and then for many many topics they cover it again in the like gming slash running the game section yeah and sometimes we'll get a fourth one which is the first time these are mentioned in like the what is eclipse phase intro section yeah it's it's a lot of like going over things. Um, I'm not sure. Which, can I play devil's advocate? Sure. You know how one of the complaints we've had about RPG book layouts in this is that like where the fuck is a given thing? Like I want this piece of information, but the book is laid out in a way where it's like I can't tell if it's going to be in the faction section or the character creation section or the lore section or the GMD notes section. This book solves that very deadly problem by simply saying it's everywhere. It's all around us. Go find it. <laughs> Go find it. <laughs> it's just like if you want to learn about something in this game, all you have to do is just like scroll 10 pages up or down and there will be a section on it. At the same time, though, there are some topics where it's like, you got to get to page 272 before someone really starts telling you what's up with the psychic powers in this game. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, I was like going through the book. I was kind of like piecing together things. I was writing down. Okay. Exurgent virus. What is this? No idea. Um, So so I, I also read like a lot, um, you know of this book we try to read like as much as we can although these are like 400 page books so give us a break (laughs) um but i tried to read like a lot of this and i tried to read at least enough where i was like okay i feel like i've i've got information on everything and there's maybe more detail in the uh, future but you know i don't need to like look at all of that stuff and then um as we were like preparing for the podcast you mentioned something and i don't want to spoil it but you mentioned uh, something involving like a fork of your character mm-hmm. and i was just like nodding and being like yep i know what that is i am definitely not just control effing fork right now in this <laughs> book because like they don't mention it until like page what 242 cool mm-hmm. um yeah. which you know that's not entirely a bad thing um there is a lot of lore in this uh, book. There's and lore a lot that of the it... players know, and then there's lore that the GM knows. <laughs> yes. And, and, and a lot the... of it is very and, fun. And here's the thing that bothers me, though. I want... The GM should know more. I was like... I stayed up a little late one night to like go through the GM yeah. section. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna get the juicy lore. It's not that juicier. It should be much, much juicier. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's light. It's light on specifics. Like... The GM will know that this thing exists and is behind this other thing, but then the book will be like, okay, what is this What is this thing that exists and is behind this other thing? And don't worry about it. You shouldn't put this in your book too hard. This is just, like, something to something to keep in mind. And I'm like, yeah. what? <laughs> what are you it talking is about? surprisingly vague for something this dense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Ah, uh, okay. So, the, the, 
I'm trying to, like, because there's so much stuff in this world, I'm trying to say, like, where do we start? Um, yeah. Um, I guess Terminator happened, and then the world, and then Earth was, like, destroyed. Yeah. Earth was, like, already, you know, very much on the road to being destroyed due to, like, resource depletion and climate change and all that stuff. Um, but then we also just, like, unleashed evil super AIs. Uh-huh. The United States, specifically, unleashed evil yeah. super AIs. Uh-huh. I... Hmm. Nation... Nationhood is weird in this game. Yeah. Do we, do we want to just, like, very quickly run down, like, the major factions and players? Because yeah. I think that in doing so, we can also yeah. get a lot of... Uh, revealing information about what kind of setting this is. So after the Terminator happened, after the Terminator plot happened, like people were in space beforehand, but the, this event referred to as the fall where earth is kind of destroyed and, and blasted um, is really the like kicker for all of humanity to move out into space. So it's pretty, it's kind of loosely divided between the inner planets, which are run by kind of corporate states and corporate alliances, um, and then the outer planets, which are kind of like the they got the frontier vibe, where there's like, um, where there's kind of all sorts of stuff. Uh, there's a military occupation, or there's like a military uh, dictatorship on Jupiter. Uh, there is like <laughs> there's like a fucking Scandinavian social democracy on the moon of Titan. Um, yeah, there's another uh, Scandinavian social democracy on Venus, right? Hmm. The Venus one is kind of like a. It's like a. I mean, I guess it kind of is. The vibe I got was more like friendly capitalism. Yeah, they've they've got like UBI. They've got social safety nets and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, they they definitely have the vibe of what someone who doesn't know it's socialism, but thinks they like socialism say when they're like i'm for socialism i want to warn people we're gonna be really insufferably communist on this episode um we like this this setting we like this game um we we are not hating on it the way we hated on for example lancer but we are going to be unbearable about this please let us do that (laughs) uh yeah 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 we are i mean we're we were straight up hating on Lancer. I think we're kind yeah. of like f- friendly ribbing this one. Yeah, and and so something that you might have like picked up from like that list of factions and and how we're like, you know, mock talking about them in like slightly mocking ways is that like this is a game that is um kind of written from that like leftist anti-authoritarian perspective, the same way that like, you know, Lancer uh is. And mm-hmm. It definitely, um, it fails not in the same ways, but it's definitely like, oh, this is clearly, like, written from a a more ANCOM type of lens that is very much like, well, the bad thing about capitalism is that it, you know, involves authority. Um, and while also kind of porting over a lot of liberalism into it. Uh, that being said... If you remember my kind of like devil's advocate defense of Lancer as we were talking about it was like, well, if you just kind of, you know, ignore the part where this is supposed to be like a really good utopia and just say that like union is, you know, 
a social democracy that is trying its best, but is also, you know, full of shit in a lot of ways and nowhere near a utopia. Um, but then you keep everything else, then it's fine. And that's the operative, that's the operative word here, right? Fine. It is like a completely normal, not so interesting sci-fi setting. This, if you manage to like kind of get past that, like, you know, anarcho-lib mindset is a really, really fun sci-fi setting. Not, like, necessarily the most inventive one, but, like, it's self-consciously a kitchen sink, right? And it does so much of the kitchen sink stuff in ways that are, like, really fun to read up about, really fun to, like, kind of think about, and, like, ooh, I'd, I'd love to make a character that rolls that into here. Um, and so I think that we're both a lot more forgiving of it, uh, because it's, it while it does kind of get into that same thing of, like, this specific type of leftism that I'm into is a total utopia in this setting. Um, we can forgive it a lot more here because there is like so much charm underneath that. I Yeah, I think you're hotter on it than I am. Um, okay. I, yeah, but my quibbles are more like when i when i so when i am going to criticize this game i'm going to speak as like a writer and like talk about kind yeah. of like my philosophy of uh creating things um and then also talk like politically um and kind of from my personal philosophy whereas for a comparison when i critique glancer i was like man shut the fuck up <laughs> yeah i am going to be criticizing this game too of course <laughs> yeah like read a book well I mean, I, I think the difference is that, like, you would describe this as really fun. I would also describe this as fine. Like, okay. you'd say, when you get past, you know, when you get past the thing, it, it's it's really good. And I would say, like, when you get past, it's fine. Like, um, I don't hate it, but I, I don't think I'm, like, super positive on it. I think the, I think basically, like, my kind of more, you know, style of writing criticisms on it i think they like kind of the things that i find wrong within on that area really kind of like hamper it in terms of like being something that i would find really interesting as a work of fiction yeah i i think that like as a work of fiction um and as as like a framework for that i'm definitely a lot less hot on it but as a collection of cool space stuff that you can use as a grab bag as, like, prompts and ideas for creating cool characters. I'm a lot more positive on it. Hmm. Okay, fair. Which um, I think that, like, you know, if somebody said, like, here's a, here's a novel written in the Eclipse Phase setting, I would say, no, thank you. Uh, <laughs> if someone pointed me to, like, the in-setting fiction that's, like, at the start of this book... I would simply say, I am skipping that and getting to the rules, <laughs> which is exactly what I did. But I think that for me, the purpose of RPG settings is less for that type of like, you know, imagined a story that the authors of this would tell in it or people that they, you know, hire to tell the stories for them. And more of just like, is there a cool grab bag of um, ideas for me to like pilfer from? Um, and obviously, like, there are ones that are going to transcend that and be just, like, really, really good, but because they're so few and far between, and, like, I am putting my cards on the table, dying to be positive about a setting on this podcast, <laughs> um, I think I, like, latched onto this one and it was just, like, there is just fun space shit. 
I am having a whale of a time. Mm-hmm. Specifically, I'm having a uh, uplifted whale that has psychic powers and loves to use the internet. Is Are there uplifted whales in this setting? I feel like it was mostly primates and cephalopods. There's birds, too. There's plenty of birds. Um, and I know that in the first edition, there was a more expansive list. Because my first idea for a character here was like, can I just be a nice, solid, four-on-the-floor, stubby little pig? Um, who, who was like a hacker. Um, and I was told like, yes, but then it turns out, no, those rules are just in first edition and they haven't like created the appropriate supplements for it yet in second. Shame. Shame. Yeah. Okay. What a shame. So do we want to just jump into the like, our, 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 our explode our like emerging critique of left tabletop that we're starting to develop yeah. on this podcast. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, and it's just something that like we we talked about. Um, and we try not to like have many conversations about this stuff before we go live. But um, I think this is just like something that we wanted to to hash out because like it's it's important to the ongoing project of this. Um, because hmm. like. You know, when we talk about left tabletop, um, we are always going to have something to criticize because if you try to um, create a game that is, you know, uh, from a leftist perspective and trying to uh, have a leftist lens to like all of these uh, problems in the world and the people who are out there trying to solve them, then it is almost always going to be really lacking. Um, and it is almost always going to pour over a lot of like weird assumptions that come from like non-left tabletop design. Um, and a big example of that is that like, okay, well, this is a game that at the start of it, there's like this little disclaimer section that's like, no, about politics. This is a leftist game. If you are an authoritarian or a bigot, this is not the game for you. And I'm like, well, why not? Like, I'm sure that some of them would get, like, you know, just upset by the fact that, like, it says that trans people are real and whatnot. But you can play as a bigot in this, you know? Like, there's there's a faction called the Jovians, um, who are, you know, these, like, very conservative, both in terms of, you know, modern-day politics and also, like, very opposed to, like, transhumanism and augmentation and doing things to your body and mind. Um, and you can just get faction points in them and and be somebody who like works for them um and like that level of like you know i I, we were talking about this that you joke that like it's the equivalent of those posts that are just like turfs unfollow me right now Mm -hmm. um and it's like wait what do you think you're accomplishing (laughs) through doing that Mm -hmm. like when i say like left tabletop as a term i am throwing paintballs into the darkness trying to hit at a thing i only see the outlines of and have Mm -hmm. no real interest in like shining a light at um and this is like where i kind of come personally as like somebody who who, like makes things a creator but i hate that term an artist but that doesn't feel right but like somebody who's like making creative work right like the yeah I am not interested in like a leftist tabletop game necessarily. And I, I, I think that that's something that like we 
want to um, make clear is that whenever a game kind of comes in from an explicitly leftist lens, whether it's Lancer or it's this, we are going to roast it and we are going to say this shit's stupid. Um, but that's not because we are holding it to like an exacting standard and searching for that like one leftist tabletop game that's going to get everything right. It's more that like we think that is not a worthwhile goal in the first place and that to be a leftist like you should obviously like you know try not to play in settings like Dungeons and Dragons that are all about like you know here's what a half orc is and there are all these racist assumptions built into it here's what an intelligence stat is and all these racist assumptions that are built into it but once you've sort of excised those it's not like you need to um come at your game through this explicit lens of like okay let's make sure that this is leftist um that doesn't necessarily like increase my enjoyment of it um i'm not going into games for that even though like i am a communist um and it's it's a goal that i sympathize with a lot because if you are confronted with the fact that like so much of what's been built up in tabletop spaces for decades has this like implicitly conservative and, and often like reactionary and bigoted bent to it then we want to create a countervailing force of that but i think we just kind of look at it and say like well but that's not necessarily a goal that you're going to get good use out of um and i don't think that like a system being from a leftist lens like really increases my enjoyment of it what i would say is like like I there I think there's a disconnect between me and a lot of like people in this tabletop space because I don't locate my political identity in consumption of media the way a lot of people do. Like Yeah. I like when I am like oh, I won't play a D and D game. Like it's it's partially it, it's partially because, you know, I have these critiques of Dungeons and Dragons from like a racial standpoint or a political standpoint. And those are true, but I think the Mm -hmm. deciding factor is me being like, this is fucking boring and I don't like it. Like, I'll read a fantasy book. I'll even read like a fan. I'll even read like the (laughs) fantasy books that inspire all of the like tropes of D and D that I would critique in D and D and I'd critique those there too. But like, if there's like a right if there's like a fucking right wing movie, I'll watch a right wing movie. I don't like care that I don't like fundamentally care or like feel my politics being threatened were like a movie that I watched to be kind of right wing because there's a lot of fucking right wing movies. Star Wars, yeah. pretty right wing movie. Um, and th- but like there's a there's a. Th- And I think we're kind of, like, taking a stab at this, like, trying to define this, like, space of tabletop that for for them, like, it is, they do want, like, a leftist tabletop game. And I don't know. I'm trying not to just, like, trash them. But to me, like, every time I've ever looked at, like, a tabletop game that's supposed to have, like, leftist bona fides, it feels really clumsy. And it feels kind of embarrassing. And it feels unrigorous. And it feels like a weird kind of thing grafted onto a setting. And that's what I would say about Eclipse Phase. I think that that comment about grafting really gets at the heart of it. Because like, if we're talking about what feels like the most authentically leftist of the games that we covered so far, I would say that it's Blaze in the Dark. Um, 
and and not necessarily in a way where like I think that that's the best game that we've covered. Um, although maybe I think it is. But the point is here that like, well, what do I mean when I say it's leftist? I mean that it is a game that's fundamentally about being like these poor shit kickers who are under the boot of aristocracy and and burgeoning capital. And who are like trying to make ends meet and, you know, maybe strike a blow against those assholes. And if you win, then it's because you retired with like enough uh, money and goods to like not starve in your old age. Um, And that's not like a particularly high standard, but it is a standard that is like built into the structure of the game. What you are doing is related to those themes and to those ideas. What you are doing in like the firewall campaigns of eclipse phase for example is being a future cyberpunk cia guy who stops you know existential threats to humanity which is something that is like completely you know detached from an idea of leftist action um and it's it's a sort of thing where like it feels like they made a you know just cyberpunk game and then they said oh right we think we're communists. And so then they just like grafted some communism onto it. Um, and that's why it feels so weird because like that idea of the political lens is like so divorced from the structure of what is actually going on in play. You know, like these are games where like you can play as these like, you know, criminal masterminds. These are games where you can play as people who gate crash, which is to say that you are like the first contact teams on these exoplanets and, you know, hope to do some kind of, you know, future colonialism in a sense. And none of those are like deal breakers by any means. I'm not like saying that because the game includes those uh, modes of play that don't have this like leftist bent to them, that that makes it a worse game. What I'm saying is that like that disconnect between like, here are just these these apolitical or even, you know, implicitly like buying into capitalist or imperialist values um, modes of play that you have just decided to like sprinkle this veneer of um, like anarcho-communism onto that part just feels really weird. And it's like, is that there to enhance like the actual game or is that to make people feel like better about themselves while playing it? If they're still in that mindset of like my consumption of art and my consumption of media are a a majorly political act that I perform. Mm -hmm. Like, there are sidebars kind of throughout the lore sections of this game that will like assure me that in the world of eclipse phase, I won't be discriminated against for being trans. Um, (laughs) In fact, one of those explicitly tells me that as you kind of said, the Jovian, you know, the Jovian Republic or whatever, will you know, even in the Jovian Republic, people transition. And then I'm kind of reading that and being like, okay, so you mean to tell me, the guys whose like faction whose like ideology is called bioconservatism will have nothing to say about me being transgender like yeah I, there's a degree to which i'm like are you fucking kidding me right now like i'm not a moron like i know what words mean um, so, so and i'm much more I... and like i'm much more personally satisfied with the game this is like yeah there are like these guys who are bioconservatives and they've you know they have they've really and they drill down it's like body you're born in no modifications no nothing no anything and i get that i'm i'm fine with that but to include that in the game and then tell me they would these guys wouldn't call me a slur 
it to me goes against everything you've established about these guys and it makes the fiction of the world feel just like immaterial yeah can can i tell you my uh my story about uh seeing sam levinson's assassination nation oh yeah sure yeah you did mention you wanted to say this yeah yeah, yeah. so um because when you told me about that um that's just like absolutely what i thought of this is a movie by sam levinson uh showrunner of euphoria and just uh you know chaser extraordinaire um and he made this movie that is about like you know social media bullying and you know hate mobs and whatnot and one of the main characters in it is a a young trans woman played by trans actress hari neff early on in the movie she sleeps with a football player and he's like hey can we keep this on the down low but as football teammates find out and they're like oh my god she embarrassed you we've got to go fucking lynch her in the street and it's it's this like horrifying you know set of ideas of like what they're doing to her but i think what really fucked me up as i was watching it is like not you know the the sight of like this transphobic violence but the cowardice on sam levinson's part by having these you know football players that were bigoted to the point where they are literally lynching a trans woman for the crime of sleeping with their friend um but they still gender her correctly at all times. They never mention anything specific that they find disgusting about her. Um, the only thing they say is that, like, she embarrassed him. And it's like, well, but she's, like, a pretty girl who's shown to be, like, popular at the school. So, like, what exactly are you embarrassed about? And they just never say it. And a big part of why I'm pretty sure that happens is because, like, they don't want this to be a movie where, like, characters say slurs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just absolutely cowardly act of like trying to have your cake and eat it too which like i sympathize with and i especially sympathize with it more for like you know a team of indie rpg creators that are trying their best as opposed to like you know a uh movie with a 50 million dollar budget but it feels like that weird type of thing where it's like well we want to give you the cathartic thrill of saying you know, die turf scum and just, like, firing your plasma gun into these, like, you know, Jovian bigots, but to also never make their bigotry have anything resembling teeth to it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's such a weird dichotomy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, like, I'm also sympathetic to it. I am, like, there's a pressure, for sure, to put this kind of stuff in your game, because otherwise, you know, a person could 100% just do a big Twitter thread about, like, there's uh there's uh there's transphobia in this game the game is transphobic uh cancel eclipse phase uh nobody play it anymore um just for like you know having like a like a a, you know where the bioconservatives like painted with a different brush um so I, i while i sympathize with it i'm also kind of like this is a like it's also kind of like a a pressure that I think should be resisted and not given into because it creates worse fiction and worse work. Yeah. Like there's another thing that happens where they talk about there's a section on autism, right? Because <laughs> oh, yes. once you make a setting where like the brain can be edited down to like really specific traits, you've created the conditions for like the the forced erasure of neurodivergence and autism right um Mm -hmm. and yet the game assures me that don't worry you can still be autistic in fact you you have a buffet 
of autistic traits and you can just pick which ones you like um which comes off as trying to be supportive and very insulting at the same time like i can what i can choose my own autism what the fuck are you talking about absolutely um i i another example of that of course is the uh section on mental health let's go ahead and uh read out the names of the subsections in here stress points lucidity and stress trauma trauma effects insanity rating and what this functionally like adds up to is like a 90s call of cthulhu sanity meter that is based on these like really retrograde ideas of like you know going crazy and and being you know marked as bad in that way but just with a lot of sidebars that are like mental health is important um it's a super weird thing where like i i remember um because like skipping ahead a bit my character is an addict right and i was looking at like oh what cool future drugs do we have here and i just remember seeing some of these um like there is a popular club drug that quote simulates the effects of paranoid schizophrenia and this feels like the kind of like you know lurid trashy exploitation nonsense that a lot of people would be very understandably like turned off by but like i as someone who's like very interested in these like you know reclamatory um approaches to to like you know being called monsters and being called like you know gross and in these historical contexts um i look at that and just sort of like laugh and say like oh hell yeah that's me um but you know it's it's i would almost prefer that level of honesty to it as opposed to just like having these having all of the actual like trappings of that but then to just have these sidebars every so often that are like mental health is real and you are beautiful anyway if you get an anxiety <laughs> disorder in this game you become completely unable to do anything because of how <laughs> worried you are about everything and it's like huh just put the just you gotta, okay, you gotta pick between mental health is real and you're valid and beautiful, and you get, like, san- insanity points from seeing scary things, and if you get enough of them, you will you will get, uh, fucking BPD. You can, like- there's, there's multiple pages of disorders and what mechanical penalties they give you to have. You can, you can get BPD from seeing a spooky alien, <laughs> like, come <laughs> How on. How do you think I got it? Uh, like, come on, man. Uh, and so, like, another thing that I want to bring up, right, is, like, we've been talking yeah. about these kind of sidebars, um, which will tell you, like, mental health is real. You won't be discriminated against for being trans or gay or polyamorous. You know what they don't have a sidebar for? Race. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. There is, in fact, no mention. There's no use of the word race in this whole book. That doesn't kind of metaphorically refer to a foot race or come right after the word alien. <laughs> Which, yeah. And like, it would be ridiculous if they did have a sidebar that says nobody is racist because the whole, like, central to the backstory of this game is that, like, racial imperial capitalism was destroying the world. And spawned super AIs that nearly killed humanity. And, like, racism 
is like continues to be baked into the fabric of this society today like people from the global like it's pretty explicit there are like millions of people from the global south who could not make it off earth except as data who now live in these like banks of servers which are bought by corporations to use as slave labor like yeah uh we have chattel slavery in our setting um which uh might be why they didn't have a sidebar that says like nobody's racist <laughs> but like just i'm and I, I like personally as somebody who makes things i'm always like you got to engage with it man if you put the thing in your if you put the thing in your work you have to engage with it or don't put the thing in your work and it is yeah. it is similar to like you said earlier this really like have your cake try to eat it too um shoot the shoot the bioconservatives and fight the corporations but don't uh don't think too hard about like whether whether a bioconservative working for the corporation would be like a bigot at you it's just like yeah it just feels untrue to the fiction i i think another good example of this is that like you know uh one of the points in character creation is like what languages does your character speak and they're all like actual languages except for one that i think is like kind of a a combination of a number of scandinavian languages Mm -hmm. um but but it's all like you know real world reference right it's not like we're speaking like you know galactic basic or anything right Mm -hmm. um and i was looking at that i mean like okay well what's like the lingua franca you know is it is it english is it mandarin is it spanish is it arabic um and it turns out that, like, that information, while it kind of sort of exists, is, like, buried very deep in discussions of specific factions and the space that they occupy. So you can, like, get a sense of what it means to be a character that was, like, you know, educated as a child and, and learned, you know, Mandarin versus a one that learned Hindi. Um, but that is just kind of, like, shoved so far to the side when it's like, well, no, that feels like it would be a major component of like well what legacies what cultural legacies what ideological legacies are these like different um you know current day factions uh carrying on and in what ways mm-hmm. um but yeah it just it feels like they really want to have like these strong connections to real world things um but to also shy away from them wherever possible mm-hmm. and like you said like when they talk about like conservatism and bigotry and whatnot it is typically against like you know ai people or uplifted animals um and it it feels kind of weird as a point to be doing it entirely like that because you know i i think we both have mixed feelings in the idea of like porting discussion of race to you know discussion of like fantasy races and species Mm -hmm. um but it especially feels weird to do that in a world that is only like, you know, a few years removed from the fall of humanity that was caused by capitalist imperialism ravaging the global south. To say that, like, well, now nobody cares, like, you know, if you're black, if you're Arab, if you're, you know, Chinese. Um, but we are only a few years removed from the process that, like, broke the whole world based on all of that shit. Mm-hmm. And then, like... It, it's a very weird thing they do where, like, in the process of the fall, like, all human nationality just, like, disappeared. Like, it, it went so quick to, like, and then we went up into space, and it was all corporations now, and, like, 
all the governments are like corporate and not like national you know um yeah the the closest thing you get is like you know we're going back to the jovians a lot but like the jovians who are stated to be like the descendants of or not descendants because it hasn't been that long but you know they are a like and like i think if you were to quote the book it would be american like united states and then south american uh yeah they're south american allies which like what's up dude Mm -hmm. and then don't and then like if you read the jovian thing it says that they're really catholic which is like hmm okay the south american allies imported you know brought catholicism into the jovian republic huh what uh what countries are we talking about (laughs) like not brazil Hmm? um not brazil interestingly enough because it 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 says later that like um, the 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 cultural legacy of Brazil is in Venus largely right now, which, as we mentioned, is like the either you know um, left of center capitalism slash so, uh, social democracy realm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like you know this was a book that was like written um, after like Bolsonaro came to power and became like the you know, awful fascist far-right U.S. ally in South America. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's like, well, if it's not them and it's U.S. allies, then, like, what process of, like, recolonialization was done at that point? And and who are they specifically talking about? And why are they such, like, a a major power block that they were able to, like, influence the culture of the Jovian Republic in that way? Mm -hmm. And it just feels, yeah, and it just feels kind of like, which I think we've alluded to earlier, kind of like a surface... Or like, like either a surface level engagement with some of these themes or like an avoidance of these themes um, in a way that just feels really like imprecise. I don't know. I don't know why you would play with this stuff and not want to engage with it um, or like not be willing to engage with it. Like then take the stuff out, make it 200 years after the fall. And it's like, oh, all the, hu- yeah. you know, the human nations are gone, you know, but like. It's all there, but it's just like the book just kind of like wants to wants to move you away from it, because um, I definitely don't think this book has a good under has like any kind of understanding of how imperialism works. Absolutely, <laughs> the anarchists pulled together a posse and like beat the beat the capitalist nations in one fight, and then all the capitalists were like, "Damn, <laughs> guess we're not going to take over the outer planets." Yeah. It's like uh, mutual aid, mutual aid, mutual aid, mutual aid, mutual aid, mutual aid. Uh, <laughs> then you know the um, anarchists—they just freely associated real hard and and beat back, beat back the entire combined army of Mars and Venus. Yeah, and uh, something that you mentioned when you we were talking about this game before recording is that like this feels like a game that it, that was written by people who would cry if you told them that the revolution would mean taking away their iPhones. You're really just um, bringing out all the meanest things I said in private on this podcast, huh? Well, you come across as a really sweet and kind person, so I have to, like, reveal you for, uh, you know, the mean dog who brings people down. Uh, but yes, um, there is a real, like, technological naivete to this book. Um, which is so weird to say for a, a book where, like, misuse of technology was one of the big contributing factors to like the destruction of earth Mm -hmm. but it's like how are we going to get ourselves out of that pit well we have this cool technology 
Yeah, multiple um, multiple times in the book, it's kind of like, well, this technology enables like a complete hellscape in the inner planets where like people are totally subject to, um, you know, where people are just totally subject to like massive exploitation um, on an almost incomprehensible scale. Um, there is yeah. a section that implies that if you are an indentured worker for a corporation, it is common for a corporation to fucking kill you before your term ends so that they can like reinstate like so that they can like re-upload your backup from before your term began and have you serve your term all over again and and the book will kind of have that but that isn't a referendum on like that isn't a referendum on like the the whole concept of this kind of like freeing the ego from the body and like you know that doesn't mean anything for the concept in general, because like in the, you know, outside in the, in the scum fleets, people are using it to have kinky sex. So like, it's fine. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's a situation where like the, the, the whole idea of like the means of production is like glossed over in a lot of ways. Um, so, so like, which is like pure cowardice to me. Oh yeah. hundred percent. The it's second, like it's the second it's, you introduce like nanofabrication and then like yes i was about to say <laughs> use that as like a hand wave to to get rid of like all questions of like supplies and and logistics and and resource questions is just like yeah insane to me like incredible yeah it's it's move. it's like well out in like the outer planets where we have these like anarchist mutual aid collectives that are just you know living life and and being generally good people it's like we can fabricate whatever we want and we share what we fabricate and thus there is no like global south that is at the bottom of this like you know global chain of production and and required for the exploitation um and that is you know the 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 cost of these like social democracies or these like high living standards in this like allegedly socialized country Mm-hmm. Um, it is all just something where it's like, well, because the technology exists, the same thing is either used for like, you know, making the world awful and miserable and that like, you know, immortal indentured servitude or to just like create this world where like all ideas of uh, production are hand waved away. And it's just like, well, but we do nice things with it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's very much like, again, as far as like liberal mindsets that are smuggled in through this like leftist political analysis there's this very strong mindset of like the problem with like the systems of power are that really bad people are in control of them Mm -hmm. um and i think that this like you know to give the game some credit like it has a greater understanding of this than you know the equivalent of like well we just need to vote trump out and then it'll be um you know everything will be good but it, it it feels like it does come to that broader conclusion of like, well, if we take the levers of power and put them in the hands of good people who value freedom and egalitarianism, then those same levers of power will now be redeemed and used for good. And it's like, well, I don't think it really works like that necessarily. Mm -hmm. And also like, you know, this kind of like unquestioning, you know, the only people in this setting who say like, we need to fundamentally change like the way the technology we use and our way of life in order to avoid another catastrophe are like the the jovian guys you know the like yeah. the like cartoon bad guys who are like the the military dictatorship that doesn't want to play with all the fun cyberpunk toys you know which is 
Which is such a, like, pervasive um, lens through which, like, these cyberpunk stories, like, kind of discuss themselves, is that, like, if someone is opposed to, like, the practice of this stuff in general, then it has to be from, like, this, you know, conservative and often superstitious way of, like, this is an abomination on a religious level, this is something that is not fitting with tradition, it's just not right, etc., right? Mm -hmm. It's very rare that, like, you see these analyses that are like, well, this is bad because... It is another means through which, like, you know, the uh, the rich can become, like, a permanent immortal aristocracy by just uh, surpassing the limitations of human bodies. And then, you know, what version of transhumanism do the poor people get? It's like, congratulations, you have a body that more effectively lets you do manual labor. Use that in order to pay off your, you know, five lifetimes worth of debt. Mm-hmm. Um, and it... it it feels weird that there isn't like structural opposition to that set of systems in this game that comes from a more sympathetic perspective. Um, And that comes from a sense of like, well, if we're talking about wanting to avoid the mistakes that led to the fall and, and to not rush headlong into it again, then, then we can do X, Y, Z and cut ourselves off from these like systems of resources and systems of exploitation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think like, that lack is in the game because like the people who made the game were like it would be sick if i had a robot body which like fair it would be sick if we had a robot body but let's be honest with ourselves about the level in which we're engaging on this concept which is it would be sick if i had a robot body um and and not tell me that you know we're working on that level but we're actually on this like oh this is our this is our left tabletop game yeah, they, they love their cool toys, and fundamentally, I don't judge them for that. Because, like, yeah, it's cool for an RPG system to have a bunch of cool toys. They make character creation more fun. They make, like, thinking about what kind of character you could play narratively more fun. <laughs> um, it's just the idea that, like, they want to have those cool toys, and then they want to have, like, uh, what they imagine to be, like, a politically rigorous justification behind them. And it's like, I'm sorry, dude, just stick with the cool toys you're gonna be better off if you just do that Mm -hmm. i judge i judge them for uh telling me they're not just interested in the cool toys and trying to tell me something else which i know is not true and doesn't doesn't come off it's not a good look um no not really uh do we have anything else that we want to get off our chests about this Hmm. i i want to do a quick callback here and remind you that uh I quote like this setting, whatever that means. <laughs> Having just spent like the last half hour talking shit about it and well, agreeing with all of Olivia's, you told me what it means. Criti- which is like criticisms about it, yeah. Which is like you evaluate a tabletop setting in terms of what interesting tools are there for you to like make a story that's fun or like make a character concept that's interesting. Um, yeah. So you like it on that merit, but when you start to sit down and go, okay, now let's think about structurally the way that resources are used in here. It just blows up. Yeah. Cause you just have um, like nano. Okay. I, I was like, I went through this whole book and I was like, okay, if they have nano fabrication, they need something to power the machines. So where does that come from? You know, I'm glad you asked. It's nano fabrication. They have a, I forget. They have a word for it where it's just like, oh, these things just run on like nanofab something or other, and it's like, okay, how do you make that? Where do you get it? Who is make? 
it, like who is producing it who's distributing it and it's just like eh, don't worry about it everyone has what they yeah. need and it's like hmm? <laughs> what's up dude dead ass yeah yeah um in, in conclusion <laughs> You won't... don't try to make your game communist. Like you'll you'll fuck up at it, and we'll roast you for it, and you don't need to. Like we we want to free you from this pressure. We want to tell you that like it's okay to just make a cool cyberpunk setting, um, and to say that like, hey, we are leftists, so we we try not to include these specific awful things. But you know, to to not so, like be shackled by that. So yeah. Is it time for boys' night? I think it's time for boys' night, yeah. Boys' night. Boys' night. All right. Uh, a first on Do Not Steal, an original character podcast, we both made male characters. Yeah. What? Uh, male characters, asterisk. no listen listen we talk about like roasting this game for like trying to be like you know leftist and whatnot and we immediately proceed to just like be like oh our characters have like all the weirdest gender shit going on believe me i i feel i feel like my guy's gender shit is like pretty uncomplicated but okay look i'm taking the toy that i think is interesting and i'm using it yeah, yeah, it's not woke. This isn't this isn't my statement of like this isn't no, my this... grand thesis on gender. I just thought this would be fun. This is probably my most cancelable character yet. So um, if I if I've said anything uh, in the course of you know the next like hour or so that you know really kind of fucks you up, then uh, I deeply apologize. I did run my character past like a couple sensitivity consultants that are dealing with uh, you know. Uh, the identities that this character is kind of, you know, it doesn't take a lot of effort to realize that uh, they're similar to. But, um, yeah, I, I, I just want to apologize for that in advance in case things get a little dicey with uh, the the weird shit that I've pulled up this time. Wait, did you actually have sensitivity consultants? Um, I just mean that I, I talked to my friend who's trans and plural and was like, does this seem to you like it's it's gonna be like super offensive? Got it. Um, okay. right. And you know they were like, no, this seems really moving and sweet. Um, mm-hmm. Although you know I'm glad that you like ran it past me. So I um, to- if it's I- not moving, in- what's up? I was gonna make a shitty joke. Uh huh. Uh huh. Okay. I was gonna make a shitty so- joke and say, yeah, I talked to my straight friend. <laughs> Yes. We are just like getting sensitivity consultants who are just like cishet white guys and just being like, so what the fuck is that like? Stupid. Uh, my guy my guy's not white though. We should just we should just talk about it. Yeah. We should just talk about Let's it. talk about it. Let's no more disclaimers. Uh already nervous enough about this as it is. Wait, Let's actually one I mean it's not a disclaimer. Um okay. Just no, like up. something that um Something that I think came up for me while making the character or, like, because I was thinking about it already. So, like, I would not, like, this is, like, I made this character and I would not, like, roleplay this character. uh, Because, as I said, like, he's not white. And, like, to me, personally, like, a white person playing a non-white character is very, like, ooh, baby. Like, um, yeah, not something that I feel like I have any business with doing. But when I make... Griffin McElroy saying Chalupa, Wokely voice. Yeah, yeah. 
But like, even though I make tabletop characters for this podcast, I approach I approach it more from a, a mindset of like creating a fictional character. And like as yeah. a writer who's writing a character, I think it is important as a white writer to like write characters of different races. And I didn't want to have all of my do not steal characters just be like white or assumed to be or like understood implicitly to be white people. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's just where I came from it. Um, if you, you know, if you have like a different view of it, then like, you know. It's, it's valid, you know? I don't think there's a singular right answer. I can kind of see both of the arguments for me, like, trying to make, you know, more non-white characters for this show, or, like, never even running into that arena at all. Uh, but I kind of, like, made my choice, and I wanted to, like, kind of lay out my reason- reasoning explicitly. Um, yeah. So, so you know, I think that, like, we will be, from time to time, like, making characters that are part of identities that we are not. Um, and we're going to try our best to be like, you know, sensitive about it. And like Olivia said, like, there's a big difference between like writing this character as a writer and playing this character and embodying this character as a role player. But at the same time, like, if you are listening to any of these episodes and you come across any of these situations where you're like, you know, you tried, but I really felt like this was over the line in some way, like, please feel free to let us know. Um, and we're always like here to listen and we're always here to like make sure that we're not just kind of blithely saying like, well, because I tried, it's all good and nobody can ever criticize me for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My, my intention of like laying out my reasoning there was not to say like, and thus I am unassailable from criticism, but like. You're unassailable from criticism because you're my best friend and I love you dearly and I will fight anyone who comes for you. But. Thank you, babe. But not not if they're giving you good faith critique over, you know, uh, unintentionally insensitive portrayal over a character. Um, yeah. I don't want to contradict literally what I just said. Yeah. So more when I like more my thought, my like intention in laying out my thoughts to say, like, I am, you know, I'm not perfect. I don't have like a perfect, yeah. you know, I don't have all the right answers to life, but like I am exercising my like critical faculties and this is the answer I've come up with to this situation. Um, oh my God. Uh, you have no idea how hard it is for me right now not to make the same joke over and over again of whenever you say like, I'm not perfect. I have, I don't have all the answers for me to just butt in and be like, yes, you are. Yes, you do. I, I am trying my damnedest to not just make that same joke five times as you try to give this like very sincere and important, uh, you know, disclaimer. <laughs> whenever someone's, whenever I hear the phrase, like, I'm not a perfect person, I always think of the Hoobastank song. So that's what's, <laughs> yes. that's what's happening in my brain <laughs> yeah. right now. There you go. Yeah. Um, so we've both made the lead singer of Hoobastank, but a femboy. <laughs> Stop. Just tell, <laughs> just just say your character's like elevator pitch. <laughs> okay. Uh you want me to go first? Yeah. Okay. Um so I'll do like a very short elevator pitch first. Um my character is named Casey. Uh Casey is an AGI, which is an artificial general intelligence. There are like three types. ALIs, which are kind of like, you know, non-fully sapient um uh like companion AIs that basically just act as, like, you know, um, better series, better Alexas. Mm-hmm. There are AGIs, which are, like, artificial people that are um, equivalent to, um, you know, organic 
people. And there are ASIs, which are artificial superintelligences, which to the extent that they've shown up so far have been like really scary and, you know, what caused the, the Terminator destruction of Earth. Uh, so Casey, he is an AGI. Um, and he has been installed as the Muse, which are, you know, those like uh, companion AIs, usually in the ALI range, of a uh, young failed daughter of a uh, business and like a family business named Celine Valencourt. Um, and basically, you know, she was somebody who was in need of a lot more guidance and support in order to become a remotely competent corporate executive. So uh, her family like kind of surreptitiously gave her an AGI instead of an ALI. The two of them ended up becoming really dear friends um, and going on a lot of like underworld adventures together. But uh, poor uh, Celine was just more and more kind of worn out by all this stuff and um, unable to like kind of stay present in the world um and ended up giving like more and more control of the body over to casey being like i can't really do this today can you just like take over and that eventually like led to her kind of asking that she be put in a um like a medically induced coma effectively where it's now just casey that is in this organic body that belongs to his best friend um slash like little sister um, so now he's basically just trying to like live his life um, as someone that she would be proud of, figuring out who he is without her, and hoping against hope that like someday he'll get a little message uh, from her saying like, "Hey, I'm ready now. I've had enough rest, and um, I'm ready to be by your side again." Well, that's a fucking bummer. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a big fucking bummer. Um, it's, it's a sort of situation where, like, I, I can imagine a million different ways of that, like, playing out in an actual campaign about, like, you know, what realizations Casey comes to, whether or not, like, you know, he, he realizes that, like, oh, she's never coming back, or whether he holds on to that hope, whether she does come back, etc., and then what that means for their life if she does. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I kind of wanted to, to, to kind of explore that territory of, um, you know, this this person who has been granted this body that they don't have, like, this, like, totally dysphoric reaction to. Um, you know, like, Casey is a male AI in a cis woman's uh, morph. Mm-hmm. But it's it's not a situation where he's, like, I feel a, a dysphoria around this and I need to, like, change it. And in fact, like, he has this view of, like, well, I need to, like, kind of keep this as as close to what uh, Celine had as, as I can, because like, well, what if she comes back? Like, I need to be a good custodian of all of this for her. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's someone who's like very sweet, very good natured, um, like laid back and less forced not to be, um, but also is like fundamentally a little naive about this stuff and holding out hope for something that's probably never going to happen. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask, what is Casey's relationship to like, um, Celine's family like what is his living situation there you know yeah um so th- they were you know they were both basically um th- the way that like this game kind of talks about um you know like the the a lot of the children of these like hypercorps is that like well you're being technically raised as an heir and thus like you're in this like lap of privilege and whatnot 
But it's also this really weird situation without like a strong real real world analog where like you're never actually going to be there, right? Because you know your your shitty parents that have all the power and all the wealth, and, um, and you're just kind of like their errand person. Um, they're never going to die. They're just going to re-sleeve into new bodies constantly. They're just going to expand their power constantly. So, mm-hmm. um, Celine was definitely someone who kind of like felt that sense of like, well, I can have a high standard of living, but like, I also feel really trapped by all of this. And, you know, that high standard of living is really contingent upon being like told to be someone that I'm not. And if I like express myself without being really careful to hide it, then I'm going to get like disowned. Um, Casey's kind of in that same boat, to be honest, where it's like, you know, he was hired basically to be like a permanent minder to this, uh, incompetent daughter, um, and kind of has that same basic mindset of like, well, I mean, I was, I'm an AGI who is, um, you know, in a position to be like hired by these hypercorps for these, um, you know, like, what is pretty much a permanent indenture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, this is actually probably the best that I can get, is to be paired with someone who is, like, really understanding, and we're on the same wavelength about this, and we both, like, can really empathize with each other and have fun, like, sneaking off and doing shit that the the family and the business wouldn't approve of. Um, whereas, like, I would if I'm not doing that, then I would probably only have like economic opportunities available to me that are like, you know, even more uh, demeaning and uh, oppressive and all of that. So um, neither of them really like her family. And in fact, um, the family's assumption is that like, oh, well, Celine just faked her death and ran off with a lot of, you know, our money and is now like, playing at being some kind of, uh, you know, solar system trotting criminal. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas actually what's going on is that like, you know, it's just Casey in there right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that means is that there are like, uh, I bought the enemy trait, which means that like, you know, you are pursued by like a persistent enemy that you can't really defeat uh, that easily or permanently. Mm-hmm. So every so often, if I was role playing this character, agents of the Valencor foundries would show up and be like, you're coming back with us. We're going to set you straight. You're going to be a productive member of this family yet. Um, And so like Casey has always tried to like stay one step ahead of them, you know, because like he and Celine want to be free of that in the first place. And also because like, there's a lot of shit going on in this body that we don't want to have to explain to this hypercorp. Yeah, I can only imagine that they would look on this entire situation as like uh someone's got to get murdered for this yeah yeah i think they would have a very hard time seeing this as anything other than like if they learned what was actually going on they would just be like oh so this like agi that we installed like went rogue and kidnapped our daughter and we've got to get her back and Mm -hmm. you know do all of this which like you know um there's definitely some conversion therapy metaphors going on in there. And um, it's it's something that, like, I was very interested in as, like, I was writing this. But it was in the sense of, like, I was writing the character that I wanted to write and hitting the emotional beats that I wanted to hit. And then would immediately realize that, like, oh, yeah, that's that's more, like, trans metaphor stuff. Or that's, like, more plural metaphor stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but not, like... 
in the explicit sense of that. I was like, I want to write the trans metaphor that finally gets the cis to empathize with us. Because it's like, fuck that. I'm not interested in doing that as a writer. <laughs> so uh, I think the other thing was like, we are kind of designing our characters with the assumption that like in the, you know, the campaign that doesn't happen, they're going to be firewall agents. Uh, so yes. do you have a specific idea for how Casey comes to like work for firewall? Uh, yeah. Um, and this is just like, we're talking now about how he comes to work for them. Right. Not like, um, not, not how... the specific mission yet. Not the specific mission yet. Yeah. Um, I don't think that that's like a particularly like complicated story. I think that like, Something that they were, do- the two of them were doing a lot of during like the last like year or so that they had together was, um, going on these like daring criminal underworld adventures. Cause to Casey, like those seem to be moments that like brought Celine to life back a little. Um, that, that like gave her excitement, gave her engagement, um, uh, made her want to be present in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so like, you know, the two of them, uh, did develop, like, a bit of a reputation as this, like, charming rake and, uh, like, daring underground fixer. So Firewall, like, at first just, like, used Casey for, like, some contract work, right, to say that, like, hey, you know, can you help us get a lead on this person? Um, and then eventually um, became enough of, like, a trusted source that was like, hey, can you actually get inducted into the the team proper and come with us on a mission. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't like too complicated of a, a story, just like, you know, being in that world of being someone who's useful and then becoming more and more useful to the point where they're like, well, we could get you involved in here. Mm-hmm. And from Casey's perspective, it was like, well, if going on these criminal underworld adventures um, was something that like brought Celine back a little bit from the brink, then maybe going on adventures that save the world is going to like be what convinces her to come back. Mm, buddy. Yeah. Again, he's, he's, he's a very sweet and naive boy. Ah, oh, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. The poor guy. Uh, this is my first time just like playing in one of these, like an uncomplicatedly decent person. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so weird. Cause the only way, the only thing that I know to do with characters like that is to just, harm like heap a lot of like dramatic irony and tragedy upon them (laughs) and i'm like oh no why did i just make an awful bitch again (laughs) i can write about good things happening to awful bitches Mm -hmm. uh all right do you want to hear about oh uh characters in eclipse ways tend to have a handle did you have a handle for casey um no and i think that most people just assume that casey is the handle got it that that the like Celine Valencore is the name because like he's he's you know to avoid drawing suspicion if only because like this is a pretty rare circumstance and it would probably be something that could like lead Valencore agents back to him. Mm-hmm. I think he kind of like lets people passively assume that like Casey is the handle and that you know Celine Valencore is the the real name. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, all right. Do you want to hear about my guy? Let's hear about your guy. Um, so we we ended up, I think, probably like saying we like gave each other like one sentence summaries before the episode because um, yeah. Hannah had just, just wanted to like clear her character concept. And I think it's very funny how we both 
ended up with the same basic idea, but then took it in, like, completely opposite directions. (laughs) Um, It's so fucking funny how we keep making characters that are like, oh, these were clearly, like, created collaboratively as deuteragonists of a story, right? And the answer is always like, no, No, this is all independent. (laughs) We just have the same shit on our mind. (laughs) Just same brain, baby. All right. Same brain. Uh, so my Eclipse Phase character is Diego Estrada. Um, his handle is Duet. Um, and Diego's story is that basically he he's actually from pre-fall uh, Earth. He was born on Earth. Um, he got off Earth basically by taking one of these like indenture contracts um, to work for a like habitat construction company, which was doing like really aggressive expansion in the asteroid belt. Um, so he worked in like these, you know, belter habitats for many, many years as like an engineer, um, Mm -hmm. basically just putting the systems together, making sure they worked, making sure they didn't fail and then moving on to the next one. Um, and over the years he began to realize kind of like the contract, which he had taken kind of like in desperation to get off earth, which was like really, you know, really starting to go bad at that point. Um, you know, after like you know, a decade or so of being in it, he really started to realize, like, the depths to which he was trapped um, and was likely to never get out. Um, So he kind of got, like, more... He basically kind of, like, got more desperate, um, started kind of, like... um, His reaction to, like, the, the way that things were piled up on him was just like, okay, well, I'll take on more work. I'll do less leisure. Like, I'm saving pretty much every penny I'm making to try to pay off this debt that I have. Um, and one of the risks that he took was basically like signing up to be like uh, a volunteer, like part of the security force for one of these habitats, um, which at this point I'm imagining is kind of like post fall. So like a lot of chaos, like a lot of fighting, um, you know, things are very unstable, but like pays really good. Uh, so he, he figured that could be a way to like really start making a dent in his debt. And so once he was on the security force, they needed to give him, like, a security force grade body, right? Um, so they took him out of, like, the, the, the like, bottom bargain bin loner that he had and gave him, like, a slightly better uh, loner uh, body. And when he woke up in that, his muse had been replaced by, like, a rogue AGI. Um, <laughs> yes! Uh, uh, we know what we like. <laughs> uh, so this AGI uh, identified herself as Catherine, um, and said that she needed to hide from the corporation and was very cagey about what she needed to hide for. Um, Diego just kind of assumed that, like, you know, be like the fact that, like, you know, AIs became like super super beings and then like destroyed the Earth is kind of a sore subject culturally and sociologically. So you can really yeah. run like a, you really run kind of like a, uh, you really kind of like run across a tightrope as a, as an artificial being of like not being labeled as like being too close to the Titans or else you're just going to get killed. Right. Um, so yeah. that's what Diego kind of assumed what was going on. Um, but basically Catherine said that like, Hey, like I see you're in kind of a shithole, uh, if you take me with you, I can help you get out and then, like, get rid of your backup um, on this corporation so they have nothing over you. Uh, and Diego was kind of like, you know what? Like, sure, let's do it. Um, so they escaped. They got the... They escaped. They took the backup with him. Diego is, like, deleted off of their 
servers basically like they have no record of him being with them um Mm -hmm. and he and Catherine just kind of like hopped across the belt like doing doing criminal shit and freelance shit uh he diego has worked as a mercenary as an engineer as a pilot even as like a criminal enforcer kind of guy he basically just kind of like goes to whatever station things are kind of popping off at and then finds out and then figures out like which of his skills he can sell to make some money um yeah and that is kind of his lifestyle um there was kind of like an understanding that at some point Catherine would get out of his head when things were like safe um but there wasn't really ever a good circumstance to do that and she's just kind of (laughs) stuck around since and they've like oh listen they've just like become friends um and they call each other like partner is it like partner in crime or are they married you know listen man it's ambiguous (laughs) Who knows? Um, so kind of like, yeah, that's where they are. Um, it is like a a wandering, a wandering, two kind of wandering rogues kind of sharing one body and chilling. Uh, I adore these two. And uh, again, I want to let people know that we did not coordinate <laughs> with not these coordinate this. These are two... These are two, like, cross-gender AGIs in bodies with, like, a close human partner, also in very different situations, um, and they're gonna be thrown together to do a mission and not, and really try to hide this fact from each other. Yeah, so, so is, um, when you, when you talk about, like, Catherine, um, you know, uh, uh, or, or rather when you talk about, like, Diego assuming that Catherine is being cagey for these specific reasons. Do you have something in mind as like a greater secret or a greater kind of like um, set of uh, uh, backstories that like Catherine is, is trying to be cagey about even to Diego? Or is that something where like, you know, um, even you don't want to be uh, definitive about that right now? I kind of don't want to be definitive. I imagine it's probably slightly more complicated than what Diego imagines. Like, otherwise, Catherine would just tell him. Um, Yeah. uh, But, like, for whatever reason, she hasn't told him the full story, and he continues to just kind of assume, well, she probably, like, got too good as an AI, and they were going to delete her. No. Yeah. Um, But he's, he's like, he's very comfortable with, like, not knowing that and, like, puts a a trust in her despite that. Yeah, to to his perspective is, like, yeah, that does happen with AIs, but, like, she's cool. Um, I think his, I think his um, conception of her is, like, well, if she was gonna, like, manipulate me and use me for something, she would have done it, like, 20 years ago, you know? Yeah. Like, we have just kind of been hanging out and she hasn't, like asked me to do anything weird you know she doesn't seem to have some kind of like big agenda beyond surviving and like that's my agenda too so whatever awesome yeah. um and then how did these two get involved in uh firewall um i think in a very matter of fact way where like kind of similar to casey's thing actually like they just started off like you know, got hired for a one-time job and then did it again and again and again with Diego being like, well, these are really dangerous, but we make a lot of money. And that's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. <laughs> like, I think I think we could buy a spaceship if we do this job. That's nice. Yeah. Okay, so these two haven't met each other yet. And 
in comparison to a lot of these other episodes that we do where like these are characters that have a long-standing relationship and a long-standing dynamic Mm -hmm. these are characters that like are are not going to meet until well after their backstories and probably like not until the start of the game proper so let's Mm -hmm. let's move ourselves into position to make that happen and talk about um the idea that we had is like the one sentence summary of you know how how are these two involved what's their relationship is that they are both firewall agents who are recently involved in like failed missions like missions that went disastrously and and led to like uh, the death of a lot of the the operatives involved Mm -hmm. and they're both trying to like pick up the pieces of their respective missions and help each other out yeah because they Um, the missions turned out to be connected in some way which again we haven't planned we're just gonna throw two missions at each other and then try to yeah and this is and this is one where, like, it really is coming in live. So, like, if we just come up with the same exact mission, then, like, I don't know what we're going to do with that. I mean, if we're going to come um, up with the same exact mission, uh, we're going to say what the book says, which is that Firewall is, like, a very secretive and decentralized agency. And it's not out of the question that they could send two yeah. teams to take care of the same thing. Actually, before we get into this, would you be um, wanting to talk about, like, what skills and like core competencies your character has because i think that might kind of color yeah. what we're thinking about as the mission um and how the two of them are approaching it yeah i could do that all right um yeah so yeah um in terms of i mean do you want to go through through all of the mechanical stuff or like most of it um i think we might do that thing that we do sometimes where we just kind of like skim through what feels important because gotcha. there's a lot of fields here that don't add up to a whole lot of complexity like we mentioned earlier <laughs> but just you know like what are your skills um do you have any interesting morph traits do you have any interesting ego traits yeah so um well i want to kind of start with motivations um where which are just kind of like general concepts that your character feels like positively or negatively towards um diego's three motivations are kind of like positive towards autonomy stability and mercurial um uh which mercurial being kind of like the term for these kind of like artificial beings um Mm -hmm. so like diego's basic guiding principles in most situations are like do what i want um don't you know kind of like keep a stable kind of like existence um and that is interpreted as like he likes this mercenary lifestyle he has and he doesn't really want to change that um yeah and also at the same time because of his experiences with Catherine, he's pretty chill about you know ais and and artificial beings and it's just kind of like yeah like they seem fine like yeah i know i know there mm-hmm. were like giant ais that almost destroyed the world but like come on yeah um um yeah so so i I think that that's an interesting contrast because like you're a character who like has this complicated situation with Catherine, but is not mercurial himself has that as one of his core motivations um casey doesn't um and i think of him as being someone who's like not really in possession of like a much of a developed political consciousness at least perhaps not until like this this like big climatic mission um his three motivations are reunion that's specifically being with Celine, Mm -hmm. adventure and self-discovery um so a lot of what he's doing is again kind of similar to what you described enjoying the life that he currently has 
Um, but also kind of feeling in a sense that like, I am kind of doing this for the sake of someone else who isn't even here anymore. And what might happen to me, like when I kind of run out of the inertia of living for her, of being like someone who is living in memory of Celine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, who am I when I'm not like doing something that I think is going to be for her ultimately? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's something that like he's very interested in. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Uh, for, so like, you can just straight up like have like multiple personalities in this game as like a trait, but it was too expensive. So I didn't buy it at character creation. And I ended up kind of like getting at like what Catherine like contributes to this kind of like composite person uh that they are through ego traits um okay so diego has the ego traits uh common sense which is a very like powered by the apocalypse thing where once per session you can he can you can ask the gm for the best advice in the situation and the gm has yeah. to like honestly tell you like the best thing to do in the situation to accomplish your goals um yep he also has danger sense, which gives him a bonus to avoiding surprise. Um, he has situation. Also got danger sense. He has a situational awareness, which means he can never be distracted. Um, and he has superior numer- uh, numeracy, which just makes him better at math. <laughs> <laughs> and also, awesome. I am imagining that this is not even necessarily like Catherine's computational power. This is his own math like stuff yeah. that comes from like. One, kind of being an engineer, and two, like, just kind of, like, sharing brain power with this AI that, like, just over the years, he's gotten pretty good at math. Yeah. Um, he also has pain tolerance, too, which lets him ignore two wounds, and I I don't think that is an AI thing. I think that is just Diego kind of being tough as nails. Yeah. Does he have any negative ego traits? No, nah, I wasn't fucking with that. Okay. Uh, so my ego traits, I do have two negative ones. One of them is enemy, which I mentioned, which is that, like, you know, at the GM discretion, some enemies can show up. Mm-hmm. In this case, it is Valancourt agents who are being like, hey, get back here and start being useful again. Um, start being, like, you know, a proper return on the investment we made in you. Mm-hmm. And the other one is no backup insurance, um, which doesn't literally mean that, like, if uh, Casey dies, then, like, that's it for him. Mm-hmm. But the way that it is um, kind of written out in the book itself um, is kind of more interesting and nuanced than that. It says, you're either poor bioconservative or like to live dangerously. You do not have any sort of backup insurance or similar arrangement. If you die, your stacks are retrieval and your ego's reinstantiation is entirely dependent upon the circumstances and GM. You may be brought back with significantly lower MP or be permanently dead. Um, And I think that what that ladders up to is that like it won't be that he is just like straight up dead but it'll be that at the very least he's separated from Celine mm-hmm. and separated from like the body that is still like kind of housing her um you know uh comatose uh consciousness mm-hmm. and the first thing that he is going to want to do is like how do I get back to her how do I find her how do I like um you know, make sure that I'm, like, caring for her again. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think would be, like, a fascinating point for him to, like, run into. To to just be completely disconnected from that relationship and that body that has, like, defined his entire existence, even as an AI. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and would like definitely make him a lot less effective at like pursuing larger goals because he's just like shut up i don't care about that right now i need to i need to find her again mm-hmm. um and as far as positive ego traits i've got composure um composure just being like um what are the mechanical benefits of that you just get a bunch of bonuses to uh like the sanity meter stuff um because he's a pretty laid-back guy and a lot of stuff that you know would uh be stressful for like um uh, like somebody with a biological consciousness isn't as stressful for him he's also got danger sense he's got hyper linguistics which basically lets him muddle through effectively with languages that he doesn't understand um which is super useful for being you know an ai that was designed and and like raised to be a corporate executive mm-hmm. um and then he has a bunch of resources uh which are resources that he and Celine kind of stole from the uh um the valencourt foundries and then you know were later able to parlay into a pretty successful career as an underground fixer those are the best kinds of resources oh yeah um yeah do you have any morph traits uh just toughness um but uh diego and catherine's body in general is what's called a security pod um and a and a pod in eclipse phase is like a biological body that is like grown its parts are grown individually and are then like assembled um and this is kind of like the this is kind of like the how do they describe it like this is kind of like the working class way to like get your body you know um yeah uh so uh by having you know a security pod basically it is like it is kind of like designed for combat it's a little tougher it's a little faster it has claws um and it also has like shock systems built into its hands so it can like palm strike you with the force of a stun baton or and this part was very funny to me charge electric electrical devices pretty cool which um, is <laughs> just a fun little thing you can do um has enhanced enhanced hearing enhanced vision uh can actually be yeah. uh puppeted remotely if needed um and then has kind of like the standard like um implants that like let you do stuff with the internet or like access machines or like not get diseases that kind of stuff yeah um yeah, similarly, the morph that uh, Casey has access to is called an exalt, which is defined as the common, non-specialized, enhanced human model. They are genetically upgraded to make them healthier, smarter, and more conventionally attractive. Um, and this is what I see as just like, this is the body that um, that Celine was born into, mm-hmm. with an understanding that like, you know, once you kind of effectively prove yourself as an effective executive then we'll kind of open you up to getting more different kinds of enhanced and specialized bodies. But this is the one that they ran away in together, basically. Um, so it's it's not like the, you know, it's something that like it's implied is given to, to people with at least comfortable levels of income and status. But um, it's not like one of these like ultra boutique ones that are given to like the, the hyper elite. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's because like it was kind of like a provisional body in a sense. Mm-hmm. As far as traits, um, I've got a minus two addiction, uh, which is like a moderately severe addiction to grin, which is just like an opiate that, you know, 
um, Celine was taking a lot of. And so now, you know, Casey has to deal with like keeping the, the physiology of the body that he's operating um, from breaking down uh, through regular fixes. He's also got a negative trait here called memory artifact, which is that like this morph that you're in is not your own and occasionally like memories bleed through. Mm -hmm. And because so many of their memories are shared, um, because they've spent so much time in the same body together, it it's I'm I'm thinking about it in either one of two ways. Um these memory artifacts are either like these little flashes that he gets that like momentarily make him think that like is that you? Are you coming back? Like, are you trying to reach out to me? And thus, like, distract him at, at key moments? Or is it potentially a situation where, like, it causes, like, a bit of, like, weird dissociation and out-of-body experience for him to, like, experience these memories from a perspective that is not his own, even though he was there and also experiencing them from the same, like, you know, literal physical point of view? Um... And I think that both of those are very interesting and I would want to kind of play it out with like a GM and figure out what would be the coolest way. But I was hunting for as many of the cool, um, you know, morph and ego traits as I could that weren't just like you get a plus 10 bonus to this thing. Mm -hmm. And that was one that I thought was very interesting. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and then just as far as positive morph traits, um, acumen, fitness, striking looks, these are just things that give like you know, passive bonuses to certain stats. And that seemed like they would be nice add-ons to the basic exalt template to kind of indicate that like, yeah, this body is a more like, you know, wealthy high-end one, even if it's not super specialized. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Diego skills. Uh, yes. He has, um, I don't really want to say all the numbers because the numbers to me that they no. don't mean that much. Uh, but his skills are athletics, which is just kind of, which is movement and gravity, uh, fray, mm -hmm. which is kind of like your defensive skill, um, free fall, which is movement in microgravity, uh, guns, um, industrial hardware, uh, interface, which is like the use of electronic devices and computers. Uh, he has a skill in field medicine. He has a skill in melee in provoke and in piloting. And his kind of best skills are fray and guns. Mainly, he had like his main kind of like skill set is in like you know fighting, um, and yeah. violence. Uh, but then he also has a really high skill in interface, which is I think kind of like the Catherine part, which is like, um, mm -hmm. and also a bit of him being an engineer um, earlier on in life, which is just like he's very good at like using things. He can pick up something and be like, oh, this is this, and just like do 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 got it and make it do what he wants to do um he yeah. has no skills which are like sorry <laughs> knowledge K yeah k-n <laughs> he has no skills all those ones i just mentioned are fake yeah. he doesn't actually have his them. knowledge skills but his areas of knowledge are um habitats um security ops uh hyper corporations agis belter interests and diy uh he Pretty cool. He has a hobby in kind of like creating things and tinkering with them, um, and just like making making interesting stuff in his spare time. Cool. Um, Casey. Similarly, I'm just gonna go with like, what are all of them? What are the best ones? And then what are my knowledge skills? Mm -hmm. So what I've got here is deceive, which is you know standard like manipulation stuff. Fray guns. You mentioned those. Infiltrate covers, like, a bunch of stealth 
um, operations, but not just like physical stealth of like hiding in a shadowy place, mm-hmm. but you know, just being unseen and unnoticed in various ways. Mm-hmm. Um, infosec, which is notably different from uh, interface, it's how, how to define this one. Let's see, what does the book properly say? Um, it's short for information security. It is about hacking, basically, mm-hmm. um, subverting, protecting electronic systems, decrypting and encrypting. Um, so it's it's a little different from interface in that they're both about like manipulating objects, but this is a little more about like breaking them and um, you know interacting with them in ways that like bypass their intended purposes or like commandeering them. Mm-hmm. Um, but he does also have interface. Uh, he has Persuade, Program, which I'm going to be totally honest, I just picked up a bunch of these because they sounded like computer shit and because they came free with, like, the templates that I got. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is actually about, like, writing software. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, finally, Research, which is, like, about being able to research things and be, like, a, a competent, like, sifter of information and academic uh best skills there are infiltrate infosec and interface the three eyes um so he's very much like this uh kind of stealthy hacker type who can be unnoticed and get a lot of things done surreptitiously uh deceive is also very high um i kind of think of him as like being a fixer and um like a a high-tech con artist Mm -hmm. um and finally the knowledge skills that i have are administration uh, that being like in the business sense, black markets, corporate psychology, criminals, nightlife, and spycraft. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the guy. Feels like that's that's probably the all the mechanics that we need to to mention. Yeah, uh, you want to talk about secret CIA spy missions? Let's talk about secret CIA spy missions that are actually mutual aid. <laughs> uh... Um, no, firewall is apolitical. You gotta, you gotta remember, it's an apolitical, <laughs> yeah. it's an apolitical system-wide CIA organization. Yeah, John Krasinski saying like, "No, look, I'm a Democrat, but I love the CIA so much." <laughs> voice. Uh, uh, so yeah. As for the, uh, do you want to do your mission, or do I want to do my mission? Like, what's the vibe? Let's do mine. Right. What's Casey's mission? Okay, that went completely fucked. Yeah, so what this started with is that Firewall got um, information that there were a number of, like, disappearances and, and like, kidnappings, effectively, of AGIs mm-hmm. um, across, like, the, the inner systems. Um, or inner planets, I guess. And uh, eventually put together uh, the information and found out that all of these AGIs were being kidnapped by a company that i named although if you've got a similar shadowy company and we just need to go with one of them then we can absolutely do that i've named this company uh bellflower systems and they were uh kidnapping all these agis and experimenting on them lashing them together to try to create a more powerful modeling consciousness um for their like you know financial models um and that would be fucked enough on its own that you would want to intervene. But the reason why this is like a firewall level thing to intervene on is because like these actions have a significant risk of creating an ASI that rapidly spirals out of their control and that, you know, would very understandably want revenge. So mm-hmm. the idea here is that like, well, we need to break these guys down, 
save these AGIs and make sure that like things don't nearly get to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so the big fatal complication happens when members of the Valancourt team catch up with Casey and his firewall infiltrators, and there are very quickly a lot of tragic misunderstandings in a row. Um, the Valancourt people think that Casey is uh, running corporate espionage for a rival um, and try to like bring him back into the fold. And that makes the firewall team think like, oh shit, you know, Casey's been a double agent this whole time and has been manipulating us for this mission. It's probably going to try to like take all these um, AI, these AGIs for himself and, you know, uh, uh, not go by like our stated mission here. Mm -hmm. So that misunderstanding doesn't turn violent, but it does like kind of create enough of a distraction and a pause and a, a tension that it like, leaves them um, vulnerable to, like, getting found out by Bellflower. Mm -hmm. So they catch on that they're there, wipe out most of them, scattering the rest to the wind, which leaves Casey as kind of, like, a rogue agent. Um, Technically trying to clear his name with Firewall, but much more interested in trying to free Bellflower's uh, captive AGIs and also to uh, slip away from the remaining survivors of the uh, Valancourt team. Mm -hmm. So I'm very interested to hear what you have as a counterpart to that. Yeah, so the mission idea that I had um, was, so uh, something I think is really interesting in this setting is a concept called forking, um, which is to download like the same consciousness into two different bodies at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. uh, kind of an early horror beat of them is like, uh, that the book uses is like, hey, like, Someone could make a copy of your consciousness and then, like, upload it somewhere and then, like, be doing God knows what to it and you would never know. Um, So the Firewall mission, basically, is that they've been, you know, sent into this habitat to investigate reports of, like, a fork of, like, a few of, like, a top Firewall agent that, like, that agent swears they have no idea exists, you know? Um pretty cool and figure out like what is that because like they're pretty high up in the organization so like if they're rogue or doing something and like basically the the mission is to like get in find this find this fork figure out what the deal is and then if necessary kill it um and uh what happened the fatal complication i think is um the leader of the fire team goes to the kill it phase too early and they like fail to to finish the job um, and the fort gets away and, like, you know, um, basically, like, comes back, comes back at them with its own reinforcements and kills almost the whole team. Um, except for, uh, Diego and Catherine, who managed to get away. Um, so to combine these missions, I think could be pretty, I think, like, the obvious one is, like, my rogue fork is working for your shadowy company. And it is, mm-hmm. it is finding the firewall team. It is finding Diego's firewall team and killing them. That puts the corporation on alert and allows them to find Casey's firewall team and kill them. <laughs> oh, um, I think I, so I can tell you why I think that rules mm-hmm. um, is because like, I think that, you know, I don't, I don't think that like uh, Casey would necessarily be like, you know, really torn up about it or like, wallowing in a um in like a self-loathing but i think that there is a real sense of like oh fuck like 
it was the fact that these guys caught up with me that caused all my team to get killed, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, it was the fact that the Valancourt agents were there for me. Um, and so I think that him, like, learning later on that, like, oh, no, it was actually, <laughs> it was actually, like, the fault of, like, Diego's fire team leader, if it was anyone's, mm-hmm. that put them on high alert to, like, create that set of circumstances in the first place. Which, uh, if you ask Diego about it, like, I don't know, I said don't do it. He said we should do it. Yeah. <laughs> he said we should do it. And, like, you know, Catherine told me I shouldn't make a scene, so I didn't. And then, look, look what that happened. And he's like, yeah. I think I should have made a scene. Because <laughs> we would have fixed, like, we would have fixed it. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I imagine probably, like, as probably Casey gets in, like, a, a second altercation with the forces chasing him. And that is when uh, Diego shows up and just starts firing um <laughs> hell yeah <laughs> uh just opening fire which i think um would honestly you know if if uh diego can be identified in any way as being firewall um i think would like kind of put casey in an awkward situation because like he is technically a rogue agent at this point mm-hmm. and so i'm wondering like what diego's um like kind of reaction to that first impression is of um casey kind of like probably having this attitude if cornered of like look you can you can bring me in uh when this is all done but like we need to finish this mission now are you in or are you out mm-hmm. um and i i'm wondering like what diego's reaction to all of that would be um i think diego would kind of be like i saved you like what are we talking about <laughs> like <laughs> he would, I mean he probably I've been laughing because it's funny but I don't think Diego laughs I'm imagining Diego is this very kind of like taciturn matter of fact like um he he I think he's like not particularly verbal I think just from like his personality and also the person he talks to most is like in his head so he can just think to talk to her so I don't think he's like the kind of guy who says much um so yeah. he he kind of saves Casey and is like, all right, farewell, let's go. And then Casey kind of gives his spiel and Diego's like, come on, let's go. Like, <laughs> you got a thing, whatever. Like, let's finish the mission, though. Yeah. Um, like, I, I, I like that, that combination of vibes as, like, person who's very matter-of-fact and does, like, most of his communication in his head um, versus, like, uh, uh, Casey's vibe of, like, surprisingly earnest fuckboy i think a uh, i think a thing that probably happens with them is that diego has an entire conversation with Catherine in his head where they decide what they're where they like weigh all the evidence of the situation decide what they're gonna do make the decision and diego's like oh yeah there's another guy and then he like turns to casey and just says like we're gonna go in there shoot those guys do that do do all right let's go and then just kind of like starts walking and casey's like what how did you hold on yeah um yeah um and then of course like for diego this mission is like a find and eliminate right it is to take down that rogue fork um Mm -hmm. who is obviously like at a high level within this bellflower operation but Mm -hmm. um how does he react i guess to like learning that this is also um especially because he has as one of his motivations mercurial how does he react to like learning that like what this operation has been about this whole time is um like the the systematic like 
uh, kidnap and exploitation of these AGIs. Mm-hmm. Um, I think probably part of his mission is also like basically find out like what the fork has been doing and then like mm-hmm. if it's if it is like counter to firewall's interest like you know destroy it stop it eliminate it um so i think he would upon finding that out interpret like get all the agis and free them as like under his mission directive you know um yeah for him he's like oh great that's a synergy there so i'll just i'll just do we'll just do that then um, yeah, which I think would be a big relief to Casey. <laughs> objective number two. <laughs> objective number one, pop that guy. Objective number two, get all the AGIs. Objective number three, uh, probably set off some computer viruses, set off some bombs, like, just just kind of really make a ruckus as we leave. Um, yeah. Um, and I, I like the idea that, like, their cooperation through this is still kind of, like, deliberately at an arm's length, because I think that, like, Casey probably identifies it as something useful to think that like no look right now these guys think that there are two groups that are coming after them and thus two problems right Mm -hmm. that there were two firewall teams but they've been mostly wiped out and that what we have left are one firewall agent and one like double agent who is doing corporate espionage for another firm um and so i think that like with Casey being this character that is, like, largely based on, you know, uh, uh, like, deception and con artistry and all of that, there's, like, this obvious question of, like, well, where does that character go once the cover has been blown and things have, like, gone loud? And I think that a big way for that to evolve in this situation would be, like, to just roll with the misunderstanding of what the the true identity is Mm -hmm. and to just kind of play up this idea that, like, no, I'm opposed to this firewall guy too, and maybe we can like, uh, you know, kind of briefly team up so I can get them off your back, and you can just get me out of here, and and uh, I can walk away from this. Listen, you can look at that security um, footage. He steps out, pops your guys, drags me by the collar, and like pulls me into the alleyway. That's not my friend. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he's very rude. He doesn't talk a lot, and I don't know how to deal with that because I am always talking. <laughs> Uh, Casey has probably, like, tried to have an, probably try to say an entire spiel to Diego while he is talking to Catherine, and just not listening. Um, I, I, I do think that, like, it's, it's less likely to be that, and, um, I think what it's more likely to be, because, like, I do think that Casey is someone who's, like, socially aware and astute enough not to just, like, start blabbing like that, Mm. but I, I think probably it would be, like, Casey is imagining like this whole mental chess match that's happening of like, okay, here's what I think. And here's what he thinks. And because I know that that's what he thinks that he's going to think that I, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Right. But then like Diego is just kind of cutting this Gordian knot and just his whole thought process, his whole time has been like, yep. So this is the next step of what we're Mm -hmm. doing. Uh, Casey is like, okay. So that Casey has a flow chart. And uh, yeah. <laughs> Casey has a flowchart, and Diego has like a checklist. Yeah, kind of like okay, save weird guy. <laughs> Use the C- Casey's um Casey's like mental uh uh like understanding of what's going on is one of those like Final Fantasy fourteen boss diagrams that look like shit posts. <laughs> 
Where it's just like five circular arrows and like 20 overlapping red zones and three green zones and a bunch of like Greek letters overlaid on them. And somebody's like, and then, taking like the, and somebody's taken the Sprite of Gutsman from Mega Man Battle Network in there for no reason. Yeah. It's a reference that and like, it, like, doesn't you know, make sense to anybody else who's outside the raid group. <laughs> and Casey's version of it is just like step one. Uh, tank draws aggro. Step two, healers heal tank. Step three, DPS does DPS. Yeah. And like, you know, like, I think, well, I, I don't know. I don't want to make Casey's like thought process like simpler than it is, but I think he's like, he's a reactive person. So he's like, look, I know what like a yeah. corporate, I know what like a corporate security thing is like basically going to be like. So you know, I, I, we do the research, we figure it out, we go in, and then if things are different, like, we, we adapt, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. I think he just, like, I don't know, it's not that he's, like, foolish or, like, purposely, like, ignoring things, but I think just, like, the way that he works is, like, pretty different. Um. Yeah, because he's probably had, like, a number of these, these scenarios before, where it's, like, the way to do well is to follow this, like, pretty simple idea, and, Mm -hmm you're going to outsmart yourself if you try to make it more than that. Yeah, I think also in this situation, he's like, this is our shot. Like, we do not have the resources to, like, make a big plan. You know, we have to yeah. we have to move before they consolidate. We have to strike before they can, like, put their guard back up. And we got to finish this okay. before, like, they can go radio for, like, guys from the next station over, you know? Um, so, so, like, speed and simplicity so wanna... is, like, an advantage in this situation. Absolutely. Um, so here's what I, I want to, to put in front of us. Mm-hmm. Um, these are definitely like the least kind of like personally involved characters that we've made since the first episode. Um, and right now at the dynamic that we've laid out, like it's a fun one, but it's a very like professional, uh, one where like, they don't really know a whole lot about each other and they probably don't have like much in a way of opinions about each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I'm going to declare, unless you strongly object to it, is that at some point, the two of them, like, really kind of open up and and have, like, this moment of emotional understanding and start to become more than just, like, people who are forced uh, to work with each other on this, this like, one job. Mm-hmm. Um, and what do you think that moment is like? Hmm. I, I feel like it has to... It's gotta be Casey kind of, like, figuring out that Catherine is not just, like, a regular muse, right? Um, yeah. Because I, like, that's kind of, like, the thing that they would share in that case. Um, so I think it, it should be, like, Casey figuring that out somehow. But I don't know what, you know, what's the trigger for when Casey starts to think, like, wait, I've seen this relationship before. Yeah, because I mean, I, I think that it's it's a lot that he's just like, you know, a, a perceptive and an empathetic person mm-hmm. um, and that like he's spent, you know, the last several years like trying to hide that this is a situation that he's in a similar situation. Mm-hmm. And so I think he just kind of like realizes that like, oh, that's not how someone interacts with an uh, ALI. That's how someone interacts with an AGI that they're trying to pretend is an ALI. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that he, like, probably even raises it in, like, this pretty, like, casual way, um, where he, like, might mention, I like the idea of, like, the moment of, you know, oh shit, like, he knows being that, like, 
uh, Casey uh, mentions that like, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm not thrilled about that course of action, but there's two of you and just one of me. So I'm outvoted. And like, you know, Diego and Catherine immediately realizing that like, oh shit, he realizes that there's like two actual consciousnesses in here and not just like a person and a uh, better Alexa. Mm-hmm. Alexa 2. Alexa 2. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my, my muse is named Alexa 2 and I am named Alexa 3. <laughs> uh, he, um, yeah, I think like that realization is probably like scary scary for Catherine um yeah but Diego's just kind of like I think Diego would kind of take it in stride um I think he would mostly be curious as like where like for next time where did we screw it up (laughs) um and um I think that like that would probably be a moment where like either Diego or Catherine or both like during the explanation could realize that like oh, he knows all this shit because he's in the same boat or, like, a very similar boat. Because mm-hmm. um, I don't think that, like, at that point, like, once he's really figured it out, I think that Casey would kind of assume that, like, there is enough of a commonality between us. There is enough of, like, a shared empathy for these, like, weird situations that we're in where I can just kind of be open about mm-hmm. it. Um, and so they realize as he's, like, giving these explanations for, like, where you went wrong and what you should do instead that, like, this is coming from someone who has lived this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think probably, like, upon realizing it, Diego has the same reaction that I had to finding out that they were in the same thing, where he just he just thinks that's funny as shit. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that, uh, that idea that just, like, this character who's been really taciturn this whole time, like, uh, finds it really funny. And, like... Casey had been approaching us from, like, this very, you know, like I said, earnest fuckboy, right? Like, from this very earnest place of empathy and being like, oh, well, of course I'll tell you, like, you know, uh, ways to to avoid these, like, slip-ups in the future. Mm -hmm. And then kind of seeing Diego's laughter and being able to take a step back and be like, oh, yeah, no, this is really funny. (laughs) Like, of you know, like, of all the, of all the, like... You know, like how big the universe is, and then it's like, oh, the yeah. only two people who survived top secret firewall missions kind of have the same fucking deal going on. Is like very funny. Yeah, and you know what I think, and not like you know necessarily with no complications to it, but you know what we've kind of described them settling into after they like, you know, get to know each other and and develop a, a relationship that's more authentic and and emotional. Mm-hmm. We have a classic buddy cop dynamic yeah, here. No, they can. We have the straight, we have the straight laced one, and we have the the kind of like you know one who's a little like looser and and loves to talk and loves to like you know do weird things. Yeah, no, they are extremely having like a buddy cop a buddy cop situation. Ah, oh. which 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 I love. Yeah, I love that we have like created these like characters that have all this weird like gender and like multiplicity stuff going on and you know like using these like future um cyberpunk dynamics and it's like where have we ended up with just like some really sweet buddy cops <laughs> uh, speaking of, of gender non of like gender stuff i forgot to mention that diego has pink hair oh pretty cool pink hair and 
pink um, hair and like a and like a sleeve tattoo of like a bunch of different flowers interlocking. Hell yeah. And you sent me like a jacket that he wears that has like a really cool um Yeah, it's like it's like a black and white like um kind of sports jackety vibe, but it has like kind of like flowers spilling over the shoulders and stuff. Um pretty cool. Yeah. Um yeah. Uh they they both definitely like you know scan as femboys or you know i i think that like with um i think uh with casey it's a little more complicated because like what's up oh i just said i think like i i i think diego is like he has to be like kind of big and ripped as hell is the thing that makes like, sense not necessarily he doesn't necessarily read like femboy um he'd probably read as like metrosexual guy <laughs> You know? Mm-hmm. I feel that, yeah. Um Yeah, and like, you know, uh uh to the extent that like this still exists in the cyberpunk uh fiction and whatnot, uh Casey is like wearing constantly like women's clothing because like that is um what he and Celine would wear back when it was the two of them in there. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's what he's used to shopping for. That's what he's used to wearing. That's what, like, feels comfortable to him. Mm. Um, so, like, his default outfit is, like, kind of a uh, long, uh, like, black leather trench coat that has, like, a, a faux fur lining that has been dyed into a gradient of, like, lilac to periwinkle. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's that, like, you know, classic, you know, neo-noir look, but just with these, like, splashes of, you know, uh, delicate and pastel color. Mm. Uh, Hell yeah! You, gotta, you can't do a sci-fi setting without like just you know coming up with some outfits. Um, no, no, you you gotta come up with like cool feature outfits. Yeah. Also, Diego has those like fucking cyberpunk lines on his face. Um, right, this is right. Is that from being a yeah, pod? This is canon for pods. Um, because pretty cool because they are kind of like assembled that way, like at joints and like yeah. across even across like smooth surfaces. They have like grooves. Uh, pretty sick assembled yeah uh wow this has been a long podcast do you want to do our questions let's wrap up with our questions Uh, yeah let's do we have a bonus question nora sent us a bonus question uh that i want to do first but nora wanted to know uh without knowing our characters vibes nora wanted to know uh if they were to get in an elevator who wants to press the elevator button first and would the other person let them uh, I, I think I feel like Diego wants to press it yeah, first. I feel like Diego doesn't get in an elevator without like knowing exactly what button he's pressing and just doing it. Yeah, he's he's someone who like very much thinks in straight lines, and um, I feel like Casey is someone who is like a bit performatively laid back. Mm-hmm. So I think that like they quickly settle into this like dynamic of like you know, um, Diego is the one that's pressing the button and like. Casey makes like a beeline for the wall of the elevator so he can lean against it in a way that like suggests more relaxedness than he actually has at this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, probably, I think probably at one time when he does that, uh, Diego would turn around and be like, uh, probably tell him like not to stand like, <laughs> like kind of like stand at attention, you know, like because things are probably going to get nasty when they get up to the elevator, like. Or when they get up to their destination floor, like, yo, don't be leaning on stuff, man. 
<laughs> like, it's gonna mess with your reaction time. Come on. Yeah. It's just like, no, 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 trust me, I'm tactically coiled. <laughs> God. We did make a buddy cop movie. All right. We did make a buddy cop movie. <laughs> uh, all right. Who's who Who's got the first question? Uh, I'll go with a, my silly question first. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you know when you said, like, does Casey have a handle? Mm-hmm. Um, that is being called back to right now. Because it says, what criminal underworld nickname did Casey, Casey briefly try to make happen before realizing it sounded corny as hell and he was lucky that nobody was calling him that? Mm. Mm. I want to say... And so I imagine this is... What's up? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, um, I imagine this is a situation where, like, he he was embarrassed enough by that experience that he's like, my call sign is Casey. <laughs> my handle is Casey. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm clearly not good at coming up with these. Yeah, I want to say it is something. It was something that just gave away way too much. You know. Um, which is kind of funny to see. Oh, like duet, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> but, like, Carlos doesn't, er, um, like, but, like, Diego doesn't give a shit, right? Like, yeah. Um, or, like, doesn't care as much, but, like, I imagine it was probably something based on, um, Celine's last name, or, like, something, like, a kind of, like, play mm. based on that that Casey thought of, and then later was, like, Oh shit! Hold on! Hold on! Hold on! Hold on! No! 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 We don't want to make it even easier yeah, yeah. Uh, for her family to find us. Yeah. Um. Like, Valencourt just means uh in, in French it means like from the low lying farm. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if he like tried to get like way too clever and like come up with a nickname that like conveyed something similar to that. Mm-hmm. And then realize, like, both, oh, this is a, a tie back, and B, I wasn't really able to make it work, and it doesn't sound yeah, cool. Yeah, like, something about, like, being a farmer, and he thought, like, oh, I'll have a handle that's, like, low class, and, like, country, and, and rural, and, like, nobody will suspect it, and yeah, it's yeah. really bad. <laughs> just, in, just embarrassing. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so do you want to do my, like, silly question? Let's do it. Uh, so, like, you know, early on in the buddy cop movie, um, Diego tried to explain, you know, I mentioned, like, uh, Diego's, like, less, uh, you know, sometimes he, he kind of favors a nonverbal communication. Uh, like, so, like, early on, before they kind of, like, build a rapport, what very complicated mechanical device did Diego try to explain completely nonverbally? And did any of it come across? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's probably like um the the like the hardware end of security systems at this place that they're mm-hmm. at. Um and it's it's like, you know, talking about the wiring, talking about like what are the mechanical innards that like keep this thing going. Um and I I think that like it was this very like kind of elaborate explanation um that, you know, Casey didn't want to interrupt and say, like, no, I already know all this stuff to you because, like, I'm an AI and have a lot of, I have exactly as much interface skill as you do. Um, but I think that, like, Casey saw it as, like, well, I shouldn't interrupt this because it's instructive for how this guy communicates and that's how we're going to get to know each other better. Um, 
And so I, I imagine that there's this, this like long, complex, nonverbal way of communicating it, um, where like Casey is being like, okay, I understand. I understand. But what he's actually saying that about is like, oh, okay. So that's where your mind goes in terms of explaining this stuff. That tells me a lot. Interesting. Interesting. I like to imagine that like they they finish that explanation and they like get the door open or hack the security system or whatever and get going. And probably in- inside Diego's head, Catherine's like, he didn't understand a fucking word of that. <laughs> God, Casey is really good at completely accidentally giving off the impression that he's dumb as hell. <laughs> like, but I think also this is Catherine berating De- Diego and like, really, you didn't say a single word. <laughs> God, right? I imagine okay, it's just um, like Diego like taking it apart and like you know twirling it in his hands and being like, mm, like handing it. See. Casey nods, he puts it back in, and then, like, uh, fiddles with something, gets another part, gives it to him, and just, like, walking him through it, but just not not saying a single thing. Yeah. Um, I think that, um... Okay, so do we want to go for our serious questions now? Yeah. Alright. So, mine's a little heavy here. Um, what's eventually going to make Casey realize that no life he lives, no matter how cool and exciting it is, is going to convince Celine to come back. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, so, okay. So I think this is... And I want to be clear, this doesn't, like, completely close off the possibility of Celine ever coming back. Mm-hmm. But I do want to close off the possibility that she'll come back specifically because he's doing cool stuff that she wants to get in on. Yeah. Um, so... I I want to make this a bummer. I, more of a bummer. I yeah. want to say this is Diego and Catherine's fault. Like, <gasps> I think, like, once they finish the mission, right? And, you know, they're, I don't know, it's buddy cop, right? So they're getting away in a spaceship as, like, the, the facility is, like, sabotaged behind them. And I imagine kind mm-hmm. of, like, in the you know, kind of, like, the adrenaline come down of, like, whatever action sequence they did, right? Everyone's just kind of talking. Um, I imagine once Casey knows that, that Catherine is, like, a, a an AGI, they, like, she probably talks. Like, um, mm-hmm. I imagine she can, you know, if they're, like, mental, if they're, like, um, electronically linked, you know, he can just hear her voice, or she can just, like, speak with um, Diego's mouth and probably has like, you know, like kind of a, a slightly different voice. You know how like voice actors can do, or like people can just change their voice slightly, yeah. um, but a way to tell. And I, I want to imagine it is Casey like looking at, you know, watching kind of like Diego and Catherine like kind of recount this and like you know kind of like work work through this having happened and have and being like oh like these two are like the adventure couple you know like but this yeah. is not what me and celine were like celine was always like way you know it is i imagine it's him thinking like celine was always more tired than this and like it always took more out of her than it like invigorated her and this is just not the case for these two um and now i know that like i thought i thought we were like them but we weren't God, that really is so sad. Yeah. Oh, that really hits me hard. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Casey. Yeah. 
Sorry, but yeah. that's where I went. Well, he's got a productive career ahead of him as a third wheel. <sighs> oh, poor guy. <laughs> poor guy. Uh. Alright. Um, yeah, uh, Diego's serious question. Um, so, <clears throat> kind of based on the, um, you know, the, uh, kind of, like, firewall agent, uh, you know, this kind of, like, rogue fork they were pursuing, I imagine that, like, at some point during a hostile situation, like, they, for whatever reason, like, will run across, like, a fork of, of Diego, and, like, how does Diego react in that situation? Um, if, if it's a hostile fork of Diego, is what I'm yeah. hearing here, right? Probably, like, yeah. they, you know, they... Uh, get attacked and like you know the attacker who they don't initially identify like turns out to be like it probably doesn't even have to be a fork but like you know they could have like the same model of like security pod you know but like yeah. a recognizable like similarity well, but, but I, I like the idea of it being a fork um because i think that that's a little like that's a little harder to confront yeah. um because i i you know, tell me if this is like completely out of character, but I do think of Diego as somebody who is like fundament, like not someone who has this philosophical idea of like a, a fundamental meanness, mm-hmm. but who kind of like defines his ex- uh, his like existence experientially, right? To say that like I am me because I am experiencing these things that I've experienced, and I'm going to keep experiencing all of those things, mm-hmm. and you know, like I I am I am myself. And to see someone else who is, like, technically me, it's like, no, that's not me. Mm-hmm. And the reason I can tell is because, like, I'm me right now, and that is clearly someone else who has, like, different agendas, different ideas, different experiences and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I, I imagine him being, like, very kind of, like, cavalier about this almost and saying, like, well, that is clearly, like, you know, an enemy that we need to eliminate the same way we need to eliminate any of these other enemies. And I think that, like, the the conflict that would come out of that is that, like, I don't think Catherine would be quite as willing to, like, make that immediate, um, like, separation as he is. Mm-hmm. And to, to almost be, like, not necessarily disturbed in a moral sense of, like, you monster, how could you do that? But to be unsettled by this idea of, like, why was that so easy for you? Mm-hmm. Like, it's not easy for me, and I have the benefit of not being you. Mm-hmm. So, like, why is why is that something that was just, like, such a quick decision point for mm-hmm. you? Yeah, I like that, because I really don't think, like, you know, I think maybe, like, the moment of realization where it's like, oh, that's, like, that's a fork of you, you know, it's Casey and Catherine being like, holy shit, and then Diego just being like, that's why he knows my knife techniques. Yeah. You know? Um, um, yeah, I think that, like, if there's if there's a way that, like, Diego responds to that, then it is in this, like practical way of like okay well if he has my same capabilities then that means xyz as like a good tactical approach. that means i can't that means um, i can't use this approach because he likely knows it but i just learned this so he probably doesn't yeah. know it um but he also doesn't know this casey person so maybe we can use him etc because yeah. i think like i'm building characterization based off what you said but i think that something that diego does to like deal with some of the existential like horror stuff that goes on in this world is to really make it practical you know like 
yeah. be, you know, oh, here's like a copy of me who is like, you know, maybe even has like my similar beliefs, you know, um, and is like doing doing this thing. Um, but he would just be kind of like, well, he's he's doing his own thing. He's a copy of me, but he's also trying to kill me so I can kill him right back. And that's no big deal. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I, I imagine that, like, Catherine would want to reckon with that in some substantial way after they've, like, had a chance to, um, like, de-escalate from that. Because I imagine that she has a, a significantly different perspective, which might be informed by whatever her, like, secret is that is a little more, you know, intense than just, well, you know, she's an AGI who is not working as intended. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I think that there's plenty of possibility there. We don't have to sketch out all of it. Cool. Cool. Are we feeling like we're done with these two? I'm feeling like we're done. I'm gonna put these nerds to bed. <laughs> tuck them in. Put the cover. Tuck them. Tuck them in real Covers tight. Right up to the chin. Uh, <laughs> they got a candle on a plate on their nightstand. They've got like those. Those uh, nightcaps that have like a little fluffy ball at the end. <laughs> oh man! And when they get up in the middle of the night, they are going to be tiptoeing. <laughs> uh, very cute, very cute. Yeah, yeah. That that's the end game of their buddy cop scenario. Is that they they tuck each other in and pull their covers up to their noses every night. <sighs> All right. Yeah. No, I I think we're good. All right. Uh, where can we find you? Where you can find me. You can find me on Twitter at Great Grieve, which is a type of bird. You can find my other podcasts. It's a type of bird. There in the pin tweet as well. Novel Not New, which is a podcast about visual novels, narrative games. We have just recently played. Don't know if the episode will be out by the time this is out, but we will have just played Suzerain, which is a... I'd call it a visual novel kind of patterned after a strategy game, mm-hmm. which is about uh, being the president of a kind of a, a country split between kind of like capitalism and communism and trying to like navigate um, the political situation there. Yeah. Okay. Where can people find you on the internet? You can find me online at Hannah Yolo. That's H-A-N-N-A-H-Y-O-L-E-A-U on Twitter. Um, and I don't have any other podcasts for now, so there's nothing else to listen to me on except for occasional guest spots. Yeah. So go back and listen to other episodes of this podcast, which is really good and has Hannah on it. Yep. Um, we're about ready to say goodbye. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, All right. You know, Until next time. I got one, right, I got right, one, right, I right, promise. Right. Ready? Until next time, uh, pull your covers up to your nose. Didn't work, didn't work. And tuck your homie in, good night. Um, okay, I think I gotta remain the host of this one. Okay, alright. Everyone's a critic. <laughs> Bye-bye.